0: This is Damon yes, yes, Albarn yes, yes. and you're listening to Hallelujah Monkeys, the number one gorilla's podcast in the world. Hello and welcome to Hallelujah Monkeys for date unknown, but shortly after that crazy live stream that just happened. Late December. My name is Dylan Flynn.
1: Let's say it's late December. I'm Trevor McGrath.
0: I'm uh, excited to be here with you Trevor this is being recorded just minutes after the crazy gorillas thing that just happened. And I feel a buzzing energy all over my body right now. We
1: are fresh from this live stream, hot off it. Some would say we just basically like, you know, the equivalent would be walking. If we, if we had walked out the venue of a live performance and immediately started recording there on the street.
0: And I think we should immediately move into a heavy air quotes
1: news section yeah let's talk about the quote-unquote news, news our first news story
0: tonight is that we had a contest trevor we did uh, we
1: on our last episode we reached out to the audience to see which which one of them would be the worthiest some would say to enjoy the <laughs> honor of sitting down with you and me and enjoying this grills live stream together
0: Others would say we used only random chance, but that random chance is in its own way is a divining rod and will lead the user to gold, and I feel that
1: it did for us, Trevor. Yeah, definitely. Do we want to welcome our guest to the show officially?
0: Please welcome to Hallelujah Monkey's contest winner, Alyssa. Hello,
2: thank you for such a kind introduction.
1: Alyssa, welcome to the show. I almost said Jones, but I think it's Johnson.
2: It is Johnson, yes. I got the it most, right. second most common last name.
1: <laughs> just,
0: you know, swing and you'll hit a Johnson eventually <laughs> if you go out there. Don't actually do that.
1: Stay home, socially distance, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, instead, just, just do a podcast-based contest and you'll find a Johnson, I guess.
2: I could just go downstairs right now and hit three.
1: Guys, I didn't prep either of you for this, but before we get into that stream, can
0: we do one news story together as sure. a trio? Sure,
1: Because, you know, they're, they're, I can think of at least one giant thing that has happened in the Gorillas fandom fan community over the course of the past few, however long it's been since we last did an episode.
0: I wonder if we're thinking of the same thing, because I don't have notes in front of me, but I sure would like to talk to you both about the Ballad of the the Valley of the Pagans music video.
1: (laughs) Okay, that's not what I was going to say. Everybody will surely remember in 10 years where they were when the Valley of the Pagans music video dropped on YouTube. (laughs) In some ways, it felt like the highlight of the phase. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it was definitely the most attention I've paid to a Song Machine video throughout Phase 7.
0: Uh so it came out it was a machinima uh, is that what you would, the word you'd use to describe it well it was a lot of footage from grand theft
1: auto 5 <laughs> and as a result the fandom was enjoying that we're all we're all quarantining we're all staying home we're all looking for new hobbies it's it's like obviously one of the boys was going to discover <laughs> video games you know Damon picked up Pac Man and Jamie picked up GTA. (laughs) But the saga doesn't end there, Trevor. It's truly a saga.
0: I think what makes this the best part of of the phase for me so far is that shortly after that video came out, and again, everybody was just dunking on it and clowning on it, that it was so ridiculous. But then shortly after the video came out, Rockstar was like, what the fuck?
2: That's the best
1: part. <laughs> you didn't even credit us. And they subsequently removed the video from YouTube, right? They took
0: it off. I don't know if, like, Rockstar told them to or if they were just like, we better get it off. Yeah. But the the final chapter of the story was on that AMA the other day when they were like, hey, what about the Valley of the Pagans video? It's like, oh, yeah, I think people didn't really like it very much. <laughs> I don't even think it's on YouTube anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Who knew? I, I'm sure they could have never guessed that they, while they were making it, that they were creating what would one day become like the great lost gorillas music video,
0: supplanting five four, supplanting rhinestone yeah. eyes. Yeah, it's now the true lost gorillas media. We have
1: a full trilogy of abandoned gorillas music videos.
0: <laughs> a- Alyssa, what do you think? Do you think that this this marks a new like? era in Jamie Hewlett's career like found digital footage instead of hand-done animation.
2: I think he should start his own YouTube channel or like a Twitch stream. I would watch it.
0: (laughs) I would absolutely like become 20% worse of a father. And then every time I got a notification that said, Huel is live on Twitch, I would like... (laughs) leave my child alone in a full bathtub to huddle into a corner
1: can we get a poggers in the chat for jamie hewlett's sick gta stunts
2: God, I remember the night before the video came out, everyone was like, oh, yeah, new Song Machine video, Valley of the Pagans, which is the best song in the album. It's got to have the best video.
0: <laughs> I remember thinking the same thing of like, oh, yeah, this is the one they held for when the album came out because they think it's like the big single and they want to use it to drive, you know, interest in the, in the Song Machine release.
1: Yeah, we, we could have never known. We could have never known. But can we talk about can we talk about the real Gorilla's news item of the month, at least what I consider it to be. Sure, Trevor. What are what are what what do you got on your mind, Gorillas Newswise? I mean, I thought this was what you were gonna say for sure, because I know that we are both really excited about the impending release of the official Hobbs hot sauce set. <laughs> oh boy. Oh you know how much I've been looking forward to this. You've been privy to my transformation over the course of the past few months into one of your favorite types of guys. A hot sauce guy. (laughs) Trevor has turned into one of my favorite kinds of guys.
0: Do you, Alyssa, have you ever known a hot sauce guy?
2: Uh, no, I have known hot sauce girls, but I've never known a hot sauce guy.
0: I've been friends with many of them over the years. Hot sauce guys and girls. I've remarked to Trevor in the past about how tickled I am by people who, you know, get really into hot sauces. Uh, And then, to my absolute delight and surprise, I've seen you go
1: down this path this year, Trevor. Yeah, I've been learning to cook over the uh, course of the past couple months in quarantine. And I guess, you know, an unanticipated uh, subplot of that whole venture has been my discovery of the wide and wonderful world of hot sauce.
0: I submit, Trevor, that as soon as whoever gets this thing second gets it that we convene for a new album release style emergency episode i'm all for
1: it yeah we gotta we gotta sit down as soon as possible
0: on the mic put these hot sauces in our mouths and give you the people at home our official review do
1: we want to talk about the last uh, news bulletin that we haven't uh, prepared for this episode but just i was just reminded of spring it on me we, we already mentioned real quick that ama that damon and jamie did right yeah, we did. And, you know, we learned, we, we heard some boilerplate gorillas answers, and we saw some boilerplate gorillas questions get thrown out. The stuff you, you, you know, you anticipate the fans are going to ask. But we also got one of the juiciest nuggets that we've gotten from the boys. In quite some time.
0: Oh my God! I'm so happy you're you're bringing this up, Trevor. I'm so thankful you remembered to talk about this on the show.
1: We got a little bit of a lore update on. Paula Cracker what? during the uh, during the Gorillas just a, like, AMA, a little, just a little,
2: a little, little
1: bit Cracker of a lore, lore update, a little, a little bit of a Paula Cracker lore update.
2: I'm such a horrible fan. I
0: had no idea. Oh, so you're learning live on on the episode. Let me pull up the this quote right now. I'm going to pull oh it up gosh. right now. Hang on. Reddit user Petchapah asked, "What happened with Paula Cracker? Do we know anything?" <laughs> Gorillas band responded, "Jamie colon." She's the manager of Asda in Stoke-on-Trent.
2: Really?
1: There we go. Now we know what Paula Cracker is doing in Asda. That is a, what is that? That is the, it's the chain of
0: grocery stores that Walmart owns in the UK. Gotcha. So She works at Walmart, basically. She's a she's a Walmart manager now, Paula Cracker. Good for you,
1: Paula. Yeah, Good for her. I'm glad she's doing well. <laughs> Women who get tangled up with Murdoch Nichols, they don't really they they tend to have dark even darker futures ahead of them, you know. That that kind of association is really just a springboard for a whole kind of toxic road that they can go down so
0: nice to see paula cracker did not go the way of courtney love
1: yes you, that's exactly what i'm saying you know good for her good for good for paula cracker
0: if you're ever in a nasda in stoke-on-trent take a look around see if paula's there
1: keep an eye out she might be there ask her to uh sign your very rare pressing of the original ghost train demo that she played <laughs> guitar on Yeah. T- uh, also tell her to come on the show yeah
0: okay Speaking of the show, we got a we got a fucking show to talk
1: about, boys and girls. Oh, we do. God. It's time. Does I guess this officially counts as our fourth live episode? Maybe, kind of, a little bit, kind of, a little bit, kind of.
0: Because we there's so much in this episode. This is like a crazy blowout episode. It really but what is. are you gonna do?
1: Yeah, but what are you gonna do? So let's. Well, I know one thing we could do. We could talk about. This Gorilla's song machine live experience that we were all just privy to.
0: Overall, I just want to say I was blown away by that <laughs> whole
1: experience. It was so great. This is one of the better Gorilla's live experiences I can think of. Like it was very professionally done, it was well thought out, and there were like a decent share of like legitimate surprises along the way. Some real mind blowers. Some face melters, even. I think it would be
0: smart if we the first thing we do is just talk about all the shit that was going wrong in the pre-stream
2: right oh because God. that's
0: a classic <laughs> girls'
2: experience. That was interesting.
0: <laughs> so, Alyssa, you you ended up with the with the craziest part of this, but let's get some of the other things out in front. I had got the virtual party pack, which was supposed to allow you and me and Alyssa and Maxton To all watch the stream together and chat live as it happened. Yep. First problem of of the day was that Maxton's code to redeem his spot in the live stream just did not work.
1: He couldn't get in and join the stream.
0: So I emailed them and I got a new code. And he did get to join the stream, but not on his phone. So he had to wait until he got home. Yep. Next, (laughs) Trevor, was your leg of the technical difficulties.
1: Yeah, I I was able to get into the stream pretty okay, but I could not. Activate my camera or my microphone. So, like, if you guys were, like, having a jolly old time chatting away through the whole show, I could not hear any
2: of that.
0: Or join in. So then the real piece de resistance is what happened to you, Alyssa.
2: Yes. That was fun (laughs) it was also extremely worrying uh apparently what was happening with me is i was bouncing around through people's chat rooms
1: (laughs) teleporting
2: yeah i was teleporting that's
1: really interesting
2: it was very weird one minute uh i'm talking to dylan the next second like i'm in some guy's living room it was a very nice living room (laughs) and i did not see him at first because apparently he was on the floor and before i saw him i bounced to another one um of i think it was a woman this time in a sweatshirt i did not see her face at all and i don't think she knew i was there (laughs) so weird it was so strange (laughs) and then i finally got back to dylan and then i switched again and i went back to that first couch again (laughs) and this time the guy on the floor like lifted his head up and like noticed me and said hello (laughs) hello And I was like, hi. And apparently he was trying to get into a chat room with his cousin. (laughs) I don't know what was happening. And then I bounced again, a completely different guy who was very nice. You know, he was very uh, welcoming, (laughs) which I was surprised about. But he seemed to think that this was like a feature (laughs) rather than a bug. (laughs) Um, And he said this was just something he thought they were doing for the pre-show. And he was very nice, and I feel bad that, uh, I had to cut away from him. If... He remembers some strange woman popping up and being very confused, and he happens to be listening to this. Hello, it was lovely to meet you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe he's a maybe he's a Hello Monkeys listener. You met Alyssa. Yeah, (laughs) super bonkers. First of all, also like, what if? Who knows what you could have seen just bouncing into somebody's living room like that? Oh, fortunately, nothing, nothing scandalous.
2: I I was very concerned, especially when I was overhearing that one woman's conversation, like faintly. I was like, I need to get. out. Out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
0: <dump the> <laughs> Well, fortunately for all involved parties, by the time four o'clock PST rolled around and this proper stream began. I experienced no further issues.
2: Yes.
1: Yeah, everything start, Everything went pretty smoothly once the actual so, show started, thankfully.
2: Yes, thank God.
1: <laughs> Should we get straight
0: into the show? I think this first song of the set has something that's worth discussing.
1: Sure, let's talk about the first song of the set. Uh, they opened, of course, the same way they opened the, the album with strange times featuring robert smith
2: oh it was so good
1: who was
0: live in studio
1: yeah i was not expecting that i was sure all we were gonna get was that silhouette of him on the moon or whatever he looked amazing he
2: did he
1: looked really good robert smith i feel like i've I've seen photos of him over the past 10 years or so and sometimes he he looks like decent and sometimes he looks like a decrepit old man which is interesting because he's not that old but here he looked like he looked pretty good he looked like he kind of just like left his living room to do the set but like he looked pretty good <laughs>
2: he had his makeup on you know he had his lipstick on he was looking great and even better he sounded great
0: that dude has taken really good care of his voice in my opinion like he sounds like he did on those old cure songs to me
1: and he i thought he sounded exactly like he did on the studio version of the song too he yeah. really nailed the same exact kind of take
0: also harshly backlighting him like that really made his hair pop in a, in a delicious and exciting way.
1: I really liked everything about the set design for like the entire show. I thought it was a really cool set for them to film this live concert on. It was like they had all kind of detritus everywhere, like girls action figures on shelves and like lore like uh, alluding props and stuff mm-hmm. like that and we had like classic other props that we've seen pop up time and time again like the horse head mask was there.
2: Uh, Noodle's Helmet from, uh, the Jaguar commercial was there, too, I noticed. What
1: a pull! I
2: know.
1: I didn't catch that one, but yeah, there was a lot of cool, like, lore-referencing stuff everywhere you looked, and that was, very, that was a very neat aspect of it that I really appreciated.
0: Also, just a really cool, uh, Now Now era collection of slogans scattered <laughs> about on things. Mm-hmm. I really like the sign on the side of Damon's Oregon that said, stay negative. Yeah, that, that was true. good. I liked
1: the one that said, COVID sucks
0: ass. <laughs> that's a good one, too. Did you see the one that said, uh, upside down crosses this side up with the arrow pointing towards the bottom of the cross?
1: <laughs> no, I didn't see that, but that's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good one. Really great performance of this song, though. Really high energy. Kick things off with to a great effect, I think.
0: And I think it carried right forward into the next song on the set, and I'd love to talk to you about it. Valley of the Pagans featuring Hologram Beck. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that
1: was that was very cool. I genuinely thought it was an actual hologram for like a split second <laughs> before... Realizing, oh, it was probably just like an After Effects thing they added for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it it looked like he was there. It It did did. look like he was there. That
2: split second when he first showed up, it like it took me just like just one second to notice he didn't have a shadow, and then the hologram flickered, and I was like, oh, oh my god, he's not there. Okay.
1: (laughs) I really liked the extended intro they gave to this one too. Me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they vamped on it for a while. If I had one problem with Song Machine as an album. It was that like some of the track transitions didn't really work for me, and I think they really improved that aspect of it for this live performance. The songs all felt much more linked together than they do on the album.
0: The set list in general, yeah, I felt like all the transitions really, really hung together. I know we're talking, stopped to talk about everything, but I really want to talk to you guys about Lee John because he- I thought he was a real MVP. Oh my
2: God. Yeah, I
1: can't, I can't. It was like unbelievable to see his voice coming out of his body live <laughs> in that, like, as he performed. Like, it it didn't look like it should have been able to come from a normal human. It was just so high and so silky. It was, it
2: was honestly amazing. And he looked amazing. That suit he was wearing, He was rocking
1: it. (laughs) One of my, I think one of the coolest shots in this early part of the concert was, like, the the camera, which, like, frequently, like, did a lot of cool moves. Like, kind of followed him out as he, like, joined the rest of the band.
0: He kept doing these little ballet spins and, Mm -hmm. like... Really moving his body. He and like at one point, I think my favorite part of the whole performance was there's one point where he hovered over Damon's organ and started like <laughs> gyrating against it, and Damon
1: was just like giggling, looking up at him. Damon was clearly having like a really good time throughout his entire performance. <laughs> oh, he yeah. was in a great form. <laughs> yeah. He was
2: having the time of his life.
1: He had the Elton John uh Pink Phantom sunglasses on too. <laughs> like those actually exist in real life. Yeah. yeah, Damon wore them. And uh
2: I think it was oh god pronounce his name for me say the bassist
0: oh uh, i believe it's Shea Adelaika.
2: yeah oh my god i'm pretty sure he was wearing elton john's suit from the music video
1: <laughs> oh my god didn't even occur to me it
2: took me a while
1: his drip game is always fantastic but he looked particularly good for this set yeah he looked great. it was
2: when i noticed his tie that there was the pink phantom figure on it and then when they actually played Pink Phantom, I noticed that it was the same tie, and I was like, "Oh, that's why he's wearing pink."
1: I didn't catch that in the moment either, but that is a very cool nod.
2: He's my favorite part of the live shows. Uh, when I, I've stayed after twice, and I met him twice, you know, he's just the nicest guy to come out and talk to people.
0: That's so sweet. I've heard so many stories about Shea hanging out after gigs and talking to fans. Shea come on the show
2: yes please come on the
0: show shea
2: (laughs) and then come on my show afterward it'll be great
0: yeah then go then go on alyssa's podcast
2: i remember when i first met him he gave away one of the rings on his finger oh my gosh and then i gave him a replacement
1: (laughs) whoa he traded
2: it was one i like just bought too and i was like well you know this is my one chance to like have a connection to this really awesome person and i took
0: it so man i wonder if he's still wearing it to this day who knows (laughs) uh okay i do want to talk about pink phantom vis-a-vis what happens at the end of it but do either of you guys have anything to say about pink phantom proper
1: i think it would have been cooler if they had done that if they had projected his cartoon character onto the stage yeah from the beginning rather than throwing them up on the screen. Like it, that seemed like a real missed opportunity to me. Well, make. they
0: put the piano down there for yeah. a couple of shots.
1: Eventually, but it would have felt like a bigger arrival moment if it had like started off there. That's that's my only critique. Otherwise, like a a pretty good version of the song, but I think like yeah, the biggest talking point about it has got to be what happened at the end. I
0: don't even exactly know how to explain what happened, but basically Damon took one last verse uh, in in Pink Phantom, and then he kind of, like, transposed up a key a little bit and, like, was kind of staying in that same groove, but he started singing the radiant light shine on you uh, refrain from Opium, and then there was this whole, like, arranged transition
1: into Opium.
2: It was so good.
1: Yeah, that really shocked me. In retrospect, it's definitely like one of the coolest things that they did specifically for this performance. It sounded really
0: incredible. I was feeling like the hairs on my neck standing up because it was kind of so
1: powerful. Yep. And once they like got into Opium, I thought that was a very good rendition of the song as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, super fun. Yeah, super fun. Then next up, we got a really good performance of Aries featuring both Peter Hook and Georgia.
2: Oh, it was great. Georgia was going so hard on those drums. Yeah.
1: That was definitely one of the highlights of the performance, uh, by far. Both in studio, which was very cool. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely like was a little bit afraid of how close to Peter Hook Damon was standing <laughs> by the end of the performance. <laughs> they kind of did like a little bow towards each other at the end, and I was like, "Oh, guys, come on, six feet, six feet." <laughs> Not the last time I would I would be very concerned about how close everybody was getting oh, to each yeah. other.
0: Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Then we got a song that, like, if you had told me they'd be cutting songs from the album, I would have bet you money that this is one of the ones that would have gotten dropped. But nope. It was, they they played Dead Butterflies. Definitely liked this version of this song better than the album version of the song. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I I agree 100%. It feels like a song that has really benefited from them having a little more time to kind of, like, nail the performances and just, like, kind of figure out the timing of it if that makes sense
0: yeah i mean kano in particular i thought was just such an improvement over his studio version of that first yeah i
1: mean i mean you mentioned to me like it it sounds better because kano is like in all likelihood wrapping his verse to this beat rather than what we both uh, suspected happened for the studio one which is he wrapped it to another beat and Damon kind of took that and copy pasted it over onto this song.
2: But he was into it too, you know, even like...
1: Oh, the best part. Yeah, he
2: was like behind Damon after he was done and just basically like egging him on.
0: Just vibing, just sitting on a yeah. stool and vibing with I
1: was I was disappointed that they didn't play the Mike Will Made It DJ tags live. That felt a little disrespectful to the hard work that the guy put into that song, but definitely overall better than the studio version, I would say
0: but i think that the mvp of this like proper set of the strange times section might be this absolute ripper of a performance of momentary
2: bliss
1: (laughs) easily the highlight of the of this main set for me when when slow tie and slaves came out and they they really ripped shit up on this version
2: man they really did and i want that hoodie (laughs) So
1: badly. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He that that was that was that was slow tie right with the uh, with like the devil horns poking out of it. That was pretty good. (laughs) But they just had such good like chavy knucklehead energy up there, you know. (laughs) Uh huh. And like they they took like a few minutes like to actually start the song, and it was almost like Damon had to channel that energy or something. Like he was getting into character, just going like Oi, Oi.
2: I was wondering what was
1: happening (laughs) i really liked the production of like the video during this song too they like overlaid all these like yellows and like effects over it that was really cool and i kind of wish we saw a little bit more of that in the main set but it it really did work better for this kind of high energy song than it i think it would have for some of the other like more restrained ones
0: yeah like the moment when the screen almost looked like it kind of exploded and then a bunch of noodles were like kaleidoscoped out onto the (laughs) stage was super cool Mm -hmm. now we enter into just the not the wall-to-wall fucking insanity
1: yeah now we go through (laughs) the looking glass and enter into the twilight zone where anything can happen and. It all does.
2: Oh my God. It all does.
1: <laughs> because they closed the main set with what song, Dylan? Okay.
0: So so we were sitting. I remember, Alyssa, you and I were sitting there. We were watching this happening. Both yeah. of us were like, I don't know what this is right now. Yeah. This groove is not recognizable. Yep. And then finally, the, mo- the first thing I latched on to was the vocal cho- chorus going,
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah, the humming. Oh my god, that it was happening and it was like it wasn't fully clicking in my head. What exactly was happening?
0: I might drop a clip of this, but you like you flipped your shit, dude.
2: I did. I w- <laughs>
0: when the robed figure who I thought might be a cool Clown clan member it arrived.
1: It looked like that, yeah.
2: But then the second he took his, head, his hood off, I knew exactly who it was. Oh, my God!
0: Wait, is that the guy from the IT crowd?
2: Yeah, and what we do in the shadows.
0: Holy fuck. What?
2: I love him! <laughs> and it was Matt Berry, who I adore.
1: <laughs> I'm only familiar with Matt Berry from the role he played in the first season of the BBC comedy, The Mighty Boosh. He played uh, this kind of man of action Zoo owner named Dixon Bainbridge. Oh,
2: I do remember that actually.
1: I don't think I've seen him in anything since. Like I watched that show as a teenager, but something about his pronunciation made me go, "Like, is that the guy who played (laughs) Dixon Bainbridge?" And then I like googled Dixon Bainbridge, and like the second I saw Matt Berry come up, like Alyssa said in the chat, like this is Matt Berry. I was like,
2: oh, whoa. I, real
1: real interesting paul i would have never seen this I, guy come me
2: in. neither it was so random <laughs> what he's really known for right now is what we do in the shadows the tv series he's one of the main characters and he is probably the best part of that show honestly like there's so many good parts of that show but the show would not be what it was without him
1: he's an incredibly funny guy i always loved him on the mighty Boosh, and it was really it- Mind blowing to see him come out for this performance of fire coming out of the monkey's head.
0: It was such a fascinating performance of the the Dennis Hopper piece. Like he really took it in a different direction. It was very kind of like you know, kind of fire and brimstone, straight from the pulpit, doom speaking yeah. kind of
2: stuff. And then he he like ad libbed.
1: <laughs> yeah, the ad libs were all great. My favorite part was when he told the band to stop playing, oh, and God, they was did.
2: Great. Was, he's <laughs> like great. everybody
1: shut up. Yeah, everybody shut up so good and that was kind of the end of like the main set because after this they they all kind of moved over to this really cool little cozy looking well-lit acoustic b stage
2: yeah with a nice little christmas tree the
1: christmas tree <laughs> with the upside down cross uh cross as like the star on top that was really cool everything was like really cast in these red lights and
2: pazuzu was up in the background it was great yeah
1: I didn't notice the Pazuzu until they did like the really intense focusing shot on him at the end, but yeah. that was a really cool, almost like reveal. And then the arrangements became very kind of acoustic stripped down dubby at this yeah, point. It reminded me of that those sessions they did, I think in phase three, when they covered that XX song. Do you remember that? When they played like yeah Death on the xylophone or whatever. This was such a cool like
0: acoustic Gorillas set that I like. I would I would absolutely shell out to go
1: see a whole set like
0: this.
2: God, me too. Yeah,
1: like a little intimate, little like tiny desk version of Gorillas. It was it was very cool. They kicked things off with a great version of Last Living Souls
0: <laughs> with the, with a live fade where at the end they just all slowly got quieter and quieter. Very interesting. It was
2: so great and. And originally, we thought it was Dracula.
0: That's right. I was like, "Is this Dracula?" <laughs> yeah. And Alyssa was like, "No, it's Last Living Souls." I'm like, "Oh right, yeah, sorry, it is."
2: But then they went into Dracula. <laughs> Astounding. Yeah, insane. another
1: another real shock, and it sounded great. The only the only way this could have been more surprising is if they had brought out that one dude from Bananas to <laughs> to do his verse over it.
0: His rap, yeah.
1: I was half expecting it to happen. I was like, is he there? Is he going to be a hologram?
0: (laughs) The band sounded so amazing over this that I felt like a little, like a burst of, I don't know if disappointment or irritation would be the right word, but just like they should have been playing this the whole time. Right. They sound amazing on it. Uh, And then (laughs) I think you and I, Trevor, especially had our brains do like a weird little electromagnetic Flashy flash when this next thing happened. <laughs> Don't get
1: lost in heaven. Is that what you're talking about?
0: Yeah, I'm talking about it because it was like a dubbed down version of it. It kind of
1: sounded like the demo version of the song. <laughs> it could have, like, it, they could have more intentionally have been doing the demo one, but it kind of sounded like a demo version of the song. It's close enough to me
0: yeah. that I want to call it a canon, don't-get-lost-in-heaven demo <laughs> performance.
1: We got it. We finally got it. Who would have seen it coming in 2020? Afterwards, we got a really cool version of Demon Days. Beautiful. Really beautiful. But then, like, the coolest thing that Dave and Auburn has ever done happened.
0: Can I just play? I'm going to play the clip. I know I'm going to, because at this point, Trevor, Maxton had finally joined the stream. Mm-hmm. And he actually joined during Fire Coming Out of the Monkey's Head. So he was here for all the, the wild shit. Yeah, all the shenanigans. So I'm just going to play this moment. Uh, so for, Okay, well, let's set, the, let's set the stage. First of all, Damon pulled out the Omnicord, which was its <laughs> own, like, really exciting, crazy moment.
1: The biggest, the biggest guest appearance of the night, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Like, yeah, he got Robert Smith's show. That's cool. He got Pierrick, That's cool. Here's the actual chord that Damon Auburn composed, quote unquote, composed Clint Eastwood on. Using that preset, hitting that chord change button, singing it. He was like, he was, he was cradling it lovingly like a, like a, a newborn babe. And he said, this is a very old friend of mine. The first thing I ever did when I bought it, I took it home and I pressed this button and he pressed the button, and it started playing, you know, the rinkiest, dinkiest version of the Clint Eastwood beat that we all know and love. It was great. Yeah. It was sick. It was a real for the fans moment.
0: It's not only for the fans, but just for, like, the dedicated hyper-nerd, like, yeah. Jordan Peters on social media following nerd fans. <laughs> the you people know?
1: who know that, that Clint Eastwood is just a preset that Damon had Dell the Funky and Sapien rap over. And yet,
0: and yet, the craziest part has not yet happened. <laughs> Let's roll that clip. I gotta play it. <laughs> the Omnicord. <laughs> That's <laughs> sick. Hey,
2: hey, 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 hey. Wait. Wait. Yes! Is that Sweetie Irie? <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! I always skip this version!
1: <laughs> no!
2: <laughs> he was like, you want a deep cut here? <laughs> what?! <laughs> No
0: fucking way.
2: I'm gonna die! Oh my god. Oh my god. Am I dead right now? (laughs) I feel like David's gonna come to my house and shoot me.
1: (laughs) This is unreal. I can't believe this.
0: I can't believe this
1: is happening.
0: I don't even know what to feel how long would i have had to sit you down in a room trevor making guesses about how they closed this show before you would have gotten
1: to that moment you were you were very staunch about avoiding spoilers for this set and this is the kind of thing that like if somebody had told me it happened before i saw it i wouldn't even have considered that a spoiler because there's no way anyone could have told me this and i like wouldn't have assumed that it was, like, a joke answer, you know? Like, what's the wildest thing you can imagine happening at a gorilla show in 2020? Uh, It would probably have to be uh, Sweetie goddamn Irie showing up and them doing the Ed Case refix of Clint Eastwood for the first time in... 20 years
0: we were we were like we were going nuts at bananas because they played two g-sides
1: cuts at a banana show gorillas played
0: two g-sides <laughs> cut at a gorilla show <laughs> it's
1: really something incredible like it felt so wild to have sweetie irie at this show like it was a real like return of the prodigal son moment you know like here's this guy who was with them when they like Really hit success for the first time, right? Oh yeah. The Ed case refix of Clint Eastwood blew up before the actual version. So this was the guy who was with them at the beginning. And now here he is, 20 years later, helping them close this set alongside like Beck and Elfin John and Robert Smith. Just somehow him being there was by far the like greatest guest appearance of the night. Not counting the Omnicord, <laughs> it was just—it was crazy seeing Damon sing the like "Feel My Motion" refrain with him was wild.
2: Oh my god, hearing Damon sing that line so fast, though. Yeah, <laughs> I thought he was gonna like pass out.
0: Because <laughs> think about it, like we we uh, we spent a long period of this show's history, like. Examining the role that Falife Life Cypher played in the early days of Gorillas and the kind of unceremonious sweeping away that they experienced. Uh-huh. But not only did Sweetie Irie give this band their first hit, they've also
1: like openly talked shit about that hit ever since. Yeah, it's been the punchline of jokes and like the lore. All kinds of stuff. But here it really did make its glorious return. It will never sound more disappointing to listen to the Ed Case <laughs>
0: refix now because this version of it, like bulked up with the huge band, you know, not all super tinny and, 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 Slapdash produced. Sweetie also just sounded like he could have fucking walked out of the booth recording that bit yesterday. <laughs>
2: oh, my God. It sounded the exact same.
1: Not only is it a far cry from the studio version, it's a far cry from the only other existing live performance of this oh song. Do you with, remember the with, the, <laughs> with the kids? With the kids running out of the tent? I was, I was half hoping that by the end of the performance tonight, they were just going to like <laughs> let loose a flood of children on the stage. <laughs> Like, just as a throwback to that, to the only other performance of this song.
0: Google Ed Case uh, Refix Live, or Sweetie Irie Gorillas Live, if you want to watch that very strange, <laughs> super early footage of, of Damon playing that song with, the, with Sweetie on, uh, in a tent with a bunch of children running around. It's
1: definitely something that I encourage all Gorillas fans to go seek out.
0: I could not have been more satisfied with this experience. I'm so happy.
1: Yeah, I mean, over the course of this podcast, you and I haven't been witness to multiple Gorillaz live performances now. Some of which have uh, really, really satisfied us. Some of which we've walked away from feeling maybe a little bit underwhelmed by. But I think this was one of the most satisfying live experiences I've had with the band yet. Even despite it not being a 100% true live experience. So fun. And
0: also Alyssa, I had a super blast doing this with you. something about the experience of like having the picture in picture and being there with another person, experiencing it as it happened did really like you know pull me out of this this 2020 of of utter alienation from all of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> I felt the warm bond with you that I would with a crowd at <laughs> a live show.
1: well, as someone who was failed by technology and did not get to experience that warm bond uh thanks for that dylan
2: <laughs> <laughs> no thank you so much honestly uh, when they first announced that they were going to do uh you know a live stream event um i was positive i would be sitting home alone watching it by myself you know and i entered <laughs> that contest on twitter as just like a throwaway uh you know i haven't bought my ticket yet i'll give it a chance you know and having actually won and having to like actually gotten to talk to you guys and watch this concert with Dylan and still talk to Trevor in the discord like this was probably the best experience i could have asked for this year
1: what a heartwarming experience this was the gorillas family is back y'all gorillas gorillas bringing people together even under a pandemic you love to see it yes.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so the 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 original idea here, Trevor, is that this is the point in the episode where we would be saying farewell to our contest winner. Am I
1: correct in that uh, assumption? Yeah, usually we have like con. Well, I mean, we've never had a contest winner on in the past, so I don't know what you're basing that on, but I well, mean, like I could, I could have this... easily seen us doing it that way, yes.
0: Yeah, this is just kind of where the pri- the, the, the described prize package is over. Right. She's got... What, what more could Alyssa have asked for than to hang out with us and then spend <laughs> a few minutes on the show? But unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, it worked out in a more serendipitous way than that, because Alyssa
1: herself is a podcaster, Trevor. Yeah, so you had the bright idea to kind of invite her on for the rest of the discussion that we're going to be having today, pretty much because it's kind of applicable to her like area of study, if you will. Alyssa, can you tell us a little bit about What a Concept and what it is?
2: Oh, I would gladly do that. (laughs) So What a Concept is a podcast I do with my best friend, Chrissy. And what we do is we sit down and we listen to albums track by track, but they have to be concept albums.
1: So what are some albums that you've tackled in the past?
2: Um. So the ones that we've gone through so far, some of my favorites, I think. Um, the one of the more famous ones is definitely Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars uh, by David Bowie. That was our first episode. And
1: classic concept, concept album. album.
2: Oh God, I know. <laughs> and another classic, but more recent, is the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance.
0: Now, is this is this idea born out of? A genuine personal love of the concept album or was it just kind of we need a focusing point for a music discussion podcast this'll work
2: no this was born genuinely out of a love for concept albums i am obsessed with concept albums
1: who doesn't like a good concept album
0: when executed well it's the best and when when executed poorly it becomes this other fun weird (laughs) relic you know
2: exactly and if anything that's what makes it really fun because if a concept album is bad we're not afraid to tear into it uh we'll be apologetic about it but (laughs) we'll still tear into it how
1: come you don't apologize to songs when you rip on them trevor i just (laughs) feel like it's better to stand by my opinions and be as unapologetic as possible in every aspect of my life but I mentioned the concept of serendipity, it's,
0: it's in full effect, because the next album on our pipeline for this little reset into
1: a, a proper season of, of the show again is a concept album, Trevor! Yeah, and it's not only a concept album, I would say it's one of the most acclaimed and most well-known albums that the leader of the Gorillaz Project, Damon Albarn, has ever recorded... You want to get into the round table
0: and talk about 1994's park life? Let's do it.
2: John's got Brewer's truth. He gets intimidated by the dirty pigeons. They love a bit of it. Who's that gut lord marching? You should cut down
1: on your port life, mate. You should get some exercise. Oh, wow, big one. Big one today, Trevor. Big one. Yeah, i I honestly have been feeling a little bit intimidated about the about the prospect of going through this album with you although at the same time very excited because like most of blur's material this is an album that i've lived with for like pretty much half my life now it was a big favorite of mine when i was a when i was a teenager and first getting into gorillas and daveman alburn's larger body of work so it's it's an album that i've long had a lot of Thoughts and feelings about. I also went backwards from
0: Gorillas into Park Life and it was one of the first places I went after like becoming a Gorillaz fan. Alyssa, your your history with this album, did you did you start with Gorillas and then move into Blur from there?
2: I did. I definitely did. But um this album kind of fell to the side uh when I was more interested in the self-titled and 13. Those were those were my albums from Blur.
1: They're definitely they're definitely different periods, and I I feel like people do kind of lean one way or the other more frequently. It's either you're a big fan of the Britpop stuff, like Modern Life is Rubbish and this album, or you're more into the later period kind of alternative and indie-influenced stuff, like the self-titled N13. All all huge tentpoles, too. But, you know, you kind of mentioned something about this being such a
0: big album in Damon's catalog. In a way, Park Life feels like it has been canonized in a way that none of the Gorillaz material has been, just in terms of, like the music intelligentsia cultural collective unconscious does that make sense to you
1: yeah totally and i think you could even say that it's been canonized not only in a way that the gorillas though hasn't but in a way that much of the rest of the blur material hasn't either because talking about like the self-titled and 13 and other blur albums those have all like received their fair share of critical acclaim but i feel like this is the one that you see get listed on like best albums ever lists and Usually pretty much either in like the top or number two or sometimes number three spot on like best Britpop albums of all time.
0: Yeah, I think that when people talk about Oasis winning the battle of Britpop, but Blur winning the war of Britpop, they're often thinking about this record as the kind of main piece of evidence of Blur being out competing against the Brothers Gallagher, the fearsome Brothers Gallagher.
2: I mean, one of them is a meme now, and the other isn't. So, <laughs> good
0: point. Yeah, absolutely. So, Trevor, I we we haven't done this in a while, but my relationship with Blur has always been like a little touch and go. And I think where we where we've left off on this show with with our story of Blur, we did Leisure or Leisure if you prefer. I I still didn't like it very much. I had some real questions and some doubts about the relative power levels, the relative Super Saiyan power levels of the four members of Blur feeling that there were two who majorly outclassed the other two. Uh, and then we did Modern Life is Rubbish, and I felt like, okay, now we're getting into proper Blur. I de- That album definitely opened up for me more than it had when I kind of went into it with a studious eye. Now it kind of feels like I'm already on territory that I know very well with Blur, and then I feel that my ideas about this record have been really formed. And I'm I'm interested to see if by the end of this conversation, like, have i has blur moved a little in my personal heat rankings or my personal canon of like the important rock bands of the 20th century
1: yeah as we've been doing these episodes i've been particularly uh interested in and excited to talk about your developing feelings about blur as we've made it through the albums because i'm in general a bigger blur fan than you are but I feel like we've landed in similar areas when it came to talking about those first two records. We were both pretty cool on leisure or leisure. And we, we kind of saw Modern Life is Rubbish as an album where things kind of started to open up a little bit more and the boys kind of took their game to the next level. But they still hadn't quite arrived on that album. They were still kind of polishing their craft, getting to know what kind of band they wanted to be. And what's so exciting about Parklife is that this is really the album where it feels like everything starts to come together for them.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like modern life is rubbish. It felt like we were two uh like, you know, remedial inner city art teachers who saw brilliance in in the student in the back of the classroom and like we held him after class saying like, you see this collage you made? This shows a really sophisticated eye. And he's like, shut up teacher, I'm only good for these streets. But now Maybe he's taken this, this advice of ours to heart, and he's ready to submit that, big, that portfolio, that portfolio to the Rhode Island School of Design. And we'll be there, you know, when he gets his diploma, wiping a single tear out of our eye.
1: Yeah, this is, this is the album that that kid in the back of the class was always capable of doing, uh, at least if he was able to put his mind to it. And it looks like the boys have, like, finally put their mind to it. So, Alyssa, you
0: having maybe a maybe a, a slightly distant relationship with Park Life, did going back to it like for this show and kind of looking at everything and thinking about everything, did it change your feelings on Park Life at all?
2: Oh, definitely. Definitely it did. Um, I definitely appreciated it so much more. It was a lot more complicated than I realized, and even though a lot of the songs are very simple— looking at it as an actual concept album and not as an album really put things into perspective for me.
0: Some of what's conceptual here and some of the what feel like the mission statements of this album are a little bit subtle. Like there is it feels like there's definitely some goals here. It's easy to forget that
1: Blur era Damon is like a what a clever little devil he is, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> he's a he's a real winky art student. And like on on Modern Life is Rubbish, we saw him pivot from uh, the lyrical style he had first started out with on leisure to becoming this this writer who works primarily with character sketches kind of like a, in a ray davies inspired vein and here we really see him lean even further into that
0: we're a long way away from the gorillas you know first take best take improv period lyricism this is yeah, like we're, we're
1: really dealing with damon the writer on this one what do we need
0: to know? Can you school me a little bit about like the backdrop of of Park Life? What led up to it?
1: I, I did want to read the the great uh, quote from Damon that's on the uh, Wikipedia page for this album because I think there's something almost a little spooky, eerie about it. Because as allegedly, is, as is
0: tradition, yeah. uh, you do read all of the Damon quotes on the show, Trevor. So, so
1: allegedly, in 1990, which if you'll remember was before even the release of leisure like blur was barely a band at this point yeah were they Seymour's, or were they had they officially become blur i don't even know i don't don't, i'm not totally sure but in a discussion with some music journalists uh damon alburn allegedly said when our third album comes out our place as the quintessential english band of the 90s will be assured that is a simple statement of fact i intend to write it in 1994 (laughs) So this was, this was a guy who was looking ahead, you know? And I got to wonder if during those sessions for, like, Leisure and, and Modern Life is Rubbish, when player were like, you know, they, they achieved some success in those days for sure, but they didn't blow up. I got to wonder if the other guys in the band were sitting around being like, "Hey Damon, where's that? Great album you were prom- promising us. Like, do we really gotta wait a couple years for that? If like you're just kind of sitting on it, like, why don't we get the ball rolling on that? He had to move it up a little. Alex James had to
0: eat. You know, your bassist cannot survive on homemade cheese alone. He had <laughs> to. You you were pointing out to me there is like a weird fetishization of the third album among yeah. certain
1: musicians. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you see it happen over and over again. Where like the third album is like the defining work of British bands. Like you got OK Computer by Radiohead. I think is the biggest obvious one. You got The Queen is Dead by the Smiths, and there, there are tons of examples. Of course, I can't think of a third one off the top of my head <laughs> at the moment. Hey, you at home, sh- shout it into your Alexa. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll hear it. So this, was, this clearly was a big moment for Damon. You know, he had talked his talk, and here was where he had to finally make it all happen. 1994 arrived, and it was time to make that big third album. And the
0: general consensus appears to have been right out the gate that the music press was like falling over backwards, especially in England, about this record being a real watershed moment. And, uh, and I feel like that's as good of a jumping off point as any to start swapping guerrilla All right, let's have the guests go first yeah listen first
2: okay the pressure's on all right the three gorillatives i have are restless sardonic Mm. and lonely
1: nice i like all those really like sardonic what do you mean by restless
2: it just it feels like being trapped in a small town you know
1: one song in
0: particular is really giving me big vibes on that gorillative restlessness uh -hmm. yeah
1: there's like a whole section of the album that i feel like works pretty well with that word
0: uh shall i go next trevor go ahead Okay, my three. Uh, no, no big mind blowers here, but they all they all work, I believe. Uh, refined. This sounds like modern life is rubbish, but every single piece was more fussed over. My second relative, astute. I think it, it speaks for itself. The thing that's like kind of catapulted this uh, this record into the canon is the way that it's so so perfectly describes different elements of the British identity. It's it's just a really really deeply observational. The last one, I'll kind of have to back this up as we go, but the last one that I have is ambiguous. I think something that Damon does a lot on this record is write about a person or a subject, and you can never quite figure out if he's on
1: one side or the other in a very intentional by design way. That's a really good point, and it's actually something that I locked into myself as I was revisiting the album uh, for this episode. It was one of, I think, the more fun elements of doing so. All right. Well, then hit me with your relatives. I'd love to hear what you came up with. Uh, My first one feels pretty obvious. It is uh, anthropological. Like obviously, this is an album that's devoted to taking a look at a specific culture and the way its people live their lives. And uh, like you were just saying, I think one aspect of that that frequently goes overlooked is just how like objective it is. Like it. it definitely celebrates the positive aspects of British culture, but Damon also like satirizes the negative elements too. Like he's definitely not looking at England through rose-tinted lenses here. He takes def- he definitely takes a very objective stance. Albeit one that could really only be taken by somebody who has like a very intimate knowledge with the subject. Yeah, and
0: not as not
1: as Fangs out as Modern Life is Rubbish was either. Although I get the impression that Modern Life is Rubbish is less about the inherent britishness of the culture and is more just about like the 90s in general my second one is metropolitan because uh said like small town but i've always actually seen this uh album as as very much feeling like it's set in a city and Mm. dealing primarily about city folk like i think the vibe on modern life was maybe a little more blue collar whereas this record is more about people who like work in offices and rich kids who go down to greece on sex holidays Sure, but I mean, some of the geography on the record is certainly like pinned
0: to these smaller beachside towns. There's a lot of beachside imagery of these little bedroom communities. We we
1: travel. We travel throughout England on the record, which I think is one of the most interesting and fun parts about it.
2: I almost wonder if maybe I've been projecting a little bit, because I did grow up in a small town, so all these feelings that I specifically relate to in these songs, I feel are small town, but... You know, it very much could just be me projecting.
0: Do you ever get into Springsteen? Does Springsteen speak
1: to you as a, as, as a small-town kid?
2: <laughs> oh, definitely. My parents are huge Springsteen fans. I grew up listening to him, so.
1: Good people. My last <laughs> my last relative is uh, realized, because not only does it feel like Blur has upgraded itself in a major way on this record, I think the world they create on this album feels very lived in and rich with detail. It really is, like, less of an album and more of, like, an entire little sonic vacation that you get to go on
0: excellent work all around the gorillatives round has been a a fruitful one i guess we're going to get into this track by track now which means that our listeners are about to hear a little octave stepping synthesizer
2: (laughs) yeah let's
1: talk about the opening track on this record a big hit single for the band girls and boys
0: Okay, I'm just gonna say right now, top three, number three, I, I did not shy away from great big singles on this record, Trevor.
1: I, I also did not shy away from big singles on this one, and this one also happens to be my number three on the album.
2: Wow. Wow. Uh
0: you <laughs> <Blair's laughs> highest charting single up to that point. It went to number five on the UK singles chart and was even a modest hit stateside, getting to number 59 on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, this song's disco influence, not characteristic of the band's sound at the time, was meant to evoke the dance club lifestyle of its lyrical subjects. Those subjects, Trevor, inspired by the culture surrounding British singles getaways, especially and specifically Club eighteen to thirty, uh, which is what's known in the UK as a, a package holiday company, which sold vacation packages to to party islands throughout. Greater Europe, specifically for like British singles or childless couples between the ages of 18 and 30.
1: Yeah, I had a good time reading about Club 18 to 30 uh, while preparing for this app. Uh, The the club's reputation was hung on the image of like trashy, drugged out kids just invading other countries (laughs) and like hooking up indiscriminately while they were there. And the company even like leaned into this eventually with this like controversial ad campaign in 1995. Uh, That had like a bunch of like advertisements on the subway and stuff. Like there was one that boasted the slogan, Wake up at the crack of dawn, or Julie, or
0: Yikes, that is (laughs) gross advertising.
1: (laughs) Very, very sordid. And uh, Damon, there's a great Damon quote I wanted to read. Uh, He was talking to The Guardian about the song in 1994 and uh, talking about those clubs. He said, I went on holiday with Justine last summer to Magulith. And the place was just equally divided between cafes serving up full English breakfasts and really tacky Essex nightclubs. There's a very strong sexuality about it. I just love the whole idea of it, to be honest. I love herds. All these blokes and all these girls meeting at the watering hole and then just copulating. There's no morality involved. I'm not saying it should or shouldn't happen. My mind's just getting more dirty. I can't help it. I can't I can't stop like reading that last part in my head in like the Austin Powers voice. Yeah, <laughs> my, my mind's, mind's just getting, getting more, more dirty. dirty, baby.
0: I can't help it, baby. Yeah,
1: it's a, it's a naughty
0: song. <laughs> it's also just so clever and so full of personality, you know.
2: Oh my god, I actually I really do love this song. I don't have it in my top 3, uh but I love a dance jam. I really do. (laughs) What
0: an interesting way to start this off too. Like one of the more iconic Britpop releases with this like all out disco pastiche, you know?
1: I think my favorite thing about this one and what really pushes it into my top three is Graham's performance on this track. Like Mm. he doesn't show up until halfway through the first verse, which is a great move. And when he does, he just kind of comes crashing in through the ceiling and he almost kind of like completely changes the flavor of the song. Like it starts out as, as like this bouncy kind of synth pop disco track. But then when Graham's guitar shows up, he turns it into this like really sweaty kind of almost dance punk workout. It's like almost like a predecessor of like the DFA sound almost. I like could easily see this being like a James Murphy song.
0: Yeah, that, that entrance is one of, is a classic. Graham Coxon drop, which is something he's just going to get better and better at. As we Maybe go through the these first
1: records. example of a great Graham Coxon drop in the Blur catalog. I can't really remember any big ones in Modern Life is Rubbish that come even close to making me feel as exhilarated as this one does. How soon you forget about birthday from (laughs) Western, how could i have forgotten about birthday i guess i'm i guess i'm just like all of damon's friends who didn't call him yeah i one of the things that
0: i love about this is it really does play into my and that quote you read too really plays into my like ambiguous read on this record because it really does feel like it's simultaneously scolding of and like titillated by all of this youthful sexual freedom you know like definitely that line, always something, so, always should be someone you really love, or like the STD reference on You Get Nasty Blisters, those seem pretty conservative and pretty sardonic. But then the songs like, you know, funky, maybe slightly lustful groove and that very striking hook, the girls who want boys who like boys to be girls, it just feels very, you know, pumped up with that Austin Powers mojo and (laughs) quite celebratory.
1: This one's also kind of become something of like a queer anthem in the ensuing years too, hasn't it? I like frequent, like whenever like Apple or Spotify or something rolls out some like shameless, like pandering pride playlist or something, I always see this one on it.
2: I was, I, that's actually in my notes saying, like, is this a bisexual anthem? You know, like, it feels
1: like it, right? if it, it feels like it, although I'm not sure if there's anything actually in the text that supports it. Of course, like, I'm all in favor of the queer community, like, appropriating this song and making it about, you know, the, the LGBTQ experience.
0: Well, there's, you know, obviously, uh, Graham and Damon would, like, smooch each other
1: on stage. The blur was yeah, always a band there was that... There was a lot of queer baiting in the early. Blur days.
0: Well, yeah. The thing to remember is that, like, circa the nineteen nineties, the the concept of queer baiting was so different, just because the queerness in general had no place in the popular culture outside of like coastal art scenes, and so even having four ostensibly straight dudes in a in a rock band, you know, smooch on stage to freak out their conservative fans is still like pushing
1: pushing the culture. I don't know if it was to freak out their conservative fans. I, the way I've always seen it was, you know, Blur, as like a male band in the 90s, they were a group that had a big, a large quantity of like, you know, fangirls. And I've always seen it as fan service to, to people who would be excited by seeing something like Damon and Graham kissing each other real quick on stage. I can see that. This is the first Blur yeah. song I ever heard, by the way, guys. Really? This- no this wasn't the first blur song i heard i mean the first blur song i heard was obviously song two i just didn't realize it at the time i song two i heard after this i can i tell you where i first heard this song because i have a very vivid memory
0: yeah it was it was the mid-1990s and it was used of the end credits music for one episode of the mtv dating game show singled out
2: oh my god
0: Uh, which was hosted by now notorious anti-vaxxer Jenny <laughs> McCarthy and now canceled creepy dude Chris Hardwick.
2: What? Uh, he got canceled? Oh my God.
0: Yeah. And so, and at the time I was like, it really struck me kind of for the the queerness element. I just remember thinking like, whoa, what's this song with this chorus that's just like, blurring these gender lines about sexuality and i remember it really like oh wow it really i really took notice and then like years later when i went backwards into blur after getting to into gorillas i remember feeling like getting to this and being like oh my
1: god this song rips i didn't know blur did this it's a great track i also think we would be very remiss uh, because we've uh, throughout our our exploration of the Blur catalog, like you've said earlier, we've touched on the fact that there are two real like watershed geniuses in this band, and two other guys who like are respectable musicians for sure, but maybe don't always keep up with them. I'm talking, of course, about the rhythm section, D- Dave Roundtree and Alex James. And I think Alex Alex James really comes into his own. On this song in particular that baseline that opens up the uh, opens up the song in the album before graham shows up is really good and one of my favorite elements of the track
0: it's the it's the backbone of the the track yeah yeah.
1: maybe my favorite alex james performance on a blur song so far
0: uh blur drummer dave roundtree is not technically on the song he swapped himself out with a drum machine that he programmed
1: uh it's all drum
0: machines he doesn't even come in on a kit like after things really start going Nope, he he huh. he seemed to be very amused by this. In fact, when the when the best of uh, compilation came out, he said that it was his favorite song on the record because he's not on it. And he said it's fun to not be on your own song. Interesting. I never knew that.
1: Do you want to do you want to move on to the next track?
0: Can I just say one thing that I don't think is my favorite thing about this song? Before we do, yeah, of course. I just think that like two and a half minutes into this five minute song is when the last verse of Girls and Boys is <laughs> over. And then the rest of the song is just kind of that hook over and over and over again. It's split up by that little falsetto bridge and that really good guitar solo. By the end, I always feel like maybe two less choruses and like one one more verse might have pushed this one even further.
1: I definitely agree with you here, and the fact that the back half of the song is so repetitive is definitely has always been a stumbling block to me in the past. Like I, I remember as a teenager when I wanted to listen to. Park Life, the album. I would frequently start on Tracy Jacks, just because I feel like I felt like I had heard Girls and Boys so many times, just because I'd heard the chorus so many times listening to the back half of it, and I feel like I could skip it. So it was kind of a surprise to find it working its way up into my top three. It's just so strong. Speaking of repetitive blur tracks, though, let's get on to track number two, <laughs> Tracy Jacks.
0: A fan favorite. This song was oddly actually issued as the album's final single, but only in the U.S., where it did it didn't chart. uh, Weird
1: move. Weird move. Very weird move. Not sure what they were thinking. (laughs)
0: Tracy Jacks grew out of Damon making uh, an intentional effort to write a name song uh, inspired by Davis Watts by The Kinks. The Kinks, of course, being like the spirit band of Blur.
1: Yeah, and uh, as a as a character study, it explores the life of its title character, who is an aging government bureaucrat with kind of like mediocre prospects he eventually kind of decides to rebel uh, and ends up streaking on the beach of the Essex seaside town of Walton where he's arrested and returned home Uh, then he ultimately decides to bulldoze his own house
2: oh man I love this this felt exactly like that kind of thing where you come back from vacation and someone you're like acquainted with but not close with did something absolutely insane oh my god
0: (laughs) yes it totally is that moment I've had that moment where you get back and you're like yeah did you hear that like yeah you got caught doing something bad with the yeah did you hear about that
1: yeah man Tracy was just streaking all over Walton. it was crazy
0: it is so small town gossip that's a really good point Again, like on Girls and Boys, the song feels very ambiguously split between like sympathetic and kind of teasing the subject, you know?
1: Yeah, I definitely think it's Damon taking on like a certain kind of stuffy, repressed variety of British life and maybe exploring the idea that such a thing is kind of ultimately unsustainable and maybe even like perhaps maddening. Considering the lengths that it drives Tracy Jacks to, obviously it's
0: like, it's a silly enough song, but the the opening line of the chorus just always like gets me in the gut. Though, just like every day he got closer, he knew in his heart he was over. is mm-hmm. an, incre- an incredible line, and it really lays out lays bare the the existential panic and grief of getting older.
2: It's very relatable, especially as someone who also works in civil service. Things can get so monotonous so quickly.
0: Maybe you should charter a, a charter a, a British train to the nearest seaside <laughs> town. and Get, get your yayas out on the weekend.
2: No, no, I dye my hair. That's good enough for me.
0: <laughs> we're all we're all fighting the battle in our own way, Alyssa. This this <laughs> song feels like a real refinement of the modern life is rubbish formula to me, but with everything really tightened up, just in terms of the the melody the arrangement it's it's extremely straightforward uh melody wise maybe verging on like kind of sing-songy or over simple but i do think it's like that's an effective
1: thing about this song to me definitely and i i think it can kind of wear on you just due to the uh, repetitive nature of it but i think it's actually one of like the best sounding songs on the record the band locking is such a groove here there's almost something kind of like motoric and hypnotic about it and i think that really complements the the subject matter pretty well too you know it's a it's a track about having a very repetitive uh machine like life and the backing track is very repetitive and kind of sounds like a well-oiled machine itself the
0: the band does sound amazing here too a- and i want to call out especially you mentioned Nox james in the last track i want to call out dave here i think that like that snare sound on here is maybe the most signature sonic element of this song. It's so wide open, like, it almost sounds like it could be a cowbell or double with a cowbell or something, but it's just, dung, dung, it's so big, it's so wide open.
1: Dave also does great work on the choruses, too, where he kind of does those, like, very quick snare rolls, like, the, he's doing all the work on the snare, that's, it very, it really sounds like tension is building. I might lose some Blur fans here,
0: uh, but I do think that the bridge of this song kind of fucks it up for me.
1: Is that the, do you mean the part where he bulldozes his own house? Yes. I think I, I like that well enough. It, rem- it reminds me a lot of Douglas Adams for some reason. I was a very big fan of Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books as a teenager. And I always thought this song had the exact same sense of humor that those books did. Definitely. But I, I, okay, so
0: maybe you can go with me on this. I, I think that the melody is whatever and that bridge. is a little bit more tossed off and everything else is a little bit tighter here. But I also don't like this story ending with Tracy Jacks bulldozing his house. Like, I think the opportunity was really here for the cops to take Tracy back home after he like attempted to break free and run nude on the beach and like, you know, reclaim his life. And then you would like end the tale with this other bridge about Tracy being stuck back at his job and mired in that mediocrity and, you know, being unable to escape the prison of his life.
1: I think that that would be maybe a little too dreary for the tone that Blur largely sticks to throughout most of this album, which is very whimsical. With one maybe
0: really weird exception later. Yeah, I already know what you're talking about. It
1: (laughs) is a weird exception. I'm looking forward to talking about that. Shall we talk about a time that we might all kind
0: of vaguely remember? The end of a century? She
1: says there's ants in the carpet
2: Dirty little monsters
0: my number two on the album trevor this is my second favorite song on park life
1: this one i i was i really struggled with my top three uh on this record and i gotta say this one just missed out i've always been a big fan of this single i really like this song a lot and it definitely almost made it in there
2: uh, this one is actually my number three. Oh snap! Nice.
1: We're in the we're in the club here at the end of
0: Glad it's getting some love. It was issued as the fourth and final single in the UK, where it went to number nineteen, which was very disappointing to Food Records executive Andy Ross. Uh, Damon would later say he regretted it as a single choice and thought they should have gone with "This Is a Low" instead. The song itself it examines a relationship between two kind of homebodies and the. The song's iconic opening lines were inspired by an infestation of ants that Damon and then-girlfriend Justine Frischman of Elastica fame uh, had in their home together in Kensington. She said there's ants on the carpet.
1: Dirty little monsters. Ooh. Damon uh, also said in an, in-, in an interview that it's about how couples get into staying in and staring at each other, only instead of a candlelight, it's the TV light. He, he also called the song pretty much identical to his original demo, to which Graham Coxon replied, if he wants to think that i'll let him a <laughs> <laughs> little, little bit a little little bit of cheeky discourse between the boys uh-huh. uh then producer Stephen street said that the song was damon getting the art of songwriting really sorted and I, I think he has a good point this does feel like kind of like a step up in terms of damon's songwriting game at least when it comes to putting together like a very compact little pop number that has a lot going on in it but gets in and out really quick i think
0: kind of say i agree 100 this song feels like a huge leap forward for damon as a lyricist to me some of these observations are so astute they're so subtle i cannot get over how good of a line we wear the same clothes because we feel the same Ooh, is i was gonna about... mention that that's a so really good, good. Line. yeah it's just like well worn in relationship life breathed into a line. It's so good.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like we don't learn a super, like a ton about the couple in this song, but there's something about the track that feels very lived in. Like I can picture their dark apartment lit by nothing but the glow of a TV screen. Some very good punchline timing
0: on that lyric The mind gets dirty as you get closer to 30. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> it sounds like he's saying, like, you know, the mind gets dirter, dirty as my partner gets closer to me. But then he kind of kind of one twos it there. I also think that like this also speaks to that, you know, nuanced, ambiguous approach. Damon was so attracted to at this time because there's plenty of surface stuff here to suggest that this song is giving us a very bleak portrait of this moment uh, in these two people's lives. You know, vermin or our our subterfuge in the carpet and the television is on all day from from sun up to sundown. Good morning TV, good night TV. But there's also so much warmth. And some romance and some real tenderness here. And that punchline about, you know, being horny at 30 is great. But it's followed by this, like, sweet image of this couple embracing each other you know bathing in the glow of the television
1: yeah what's bleak to some people might be very comfortable to others i think that's a good point
2: you know what i actually uh kind of see this song as one of the more lonely ones to be honest oh
1: because maybe the
0: isolation of it right
2: uh, yeah the isolation of it the fact that there are ants in their house usually is a not a good sign <laughs> you know i usually take that as a bad omen if uh, we're talking about relationships i don't know it's it's repetitive and it doesn't seem like they're talking to each other it's just there we are sitting next to each other in front of the tv again you know
0: it's definitely got enough room in it for for to read it as kind of like a doomed thing or a loving thing
1: yeah the ambiguity of it all really is one of the track's greatest strengths what do you make of that lyric during the bridge uh can you eat her yes you can no (laughs) No idea (laughs) No (laughs) idea. I've never been able to, like, come up with a good read of that. I stared at it for a while this time around to see, do I have it? Can I eat her take? And let me tell you, I don't. It's also not annotated on Genius, so we're not alone. People just do not know what to make about this lyric. Love what Graham is doing here. That country riff he keeps playing
0: during the hook, da 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 da, is so warm. It's so rich. The, the trombone solo is a real highlight.
1: Yeah, the trombone solo is one of my favorite, probably my favorite thing about this song, and one of my favorite instrumental uh, additions to the entire album. And like you said, Graham does great work on this one, both his electric uh, guitar and acoustic guitar. Work is very good on this one.
0: You want to talk about the
1: probably the, the most iconic thing that happens on this record? The, do you do you mean the the title track coming up next? We got Park Life.
2: Confidence is a preference for the habitual voyeur of what is known as. A morning suit can be avoided if you take a route straight through what is known as. John Scott brewers crew. He gets intimidated by the dirty pigeons. They love a bit of him Who's that couple marching? You should cut down on your pork life mate get some exercise.
0: Okay so this is released as the album's third single. It went to number 10 in the UK. Uh, its cultural impact in the UK was substantial. It spread a national discourse about the way that young wealthy like middle class people were affecting the dress and the speech of the working class, especially by adopting the estuary English accent, which actor Phil Daniels exhibits in his narration. Uh, But Graham Coxon took some umbrage with that assessment, Trevor. He, He said that the song was not about the working class. It was about the park class, dustbin men, pigeons, joggers things we saw every day on the way to the studio.
1: Right, and I, and I also heard that Daniels wasn't even originally meant to be on this song. Uh, Damon originally performed the part of the narrator, but he, he felt like his delivery lacked authenticity. Uh, he said, I create these characters, but I can't really be them. It's too difficult. He conceived the song while he was doing some people watching on a bench in Hyde Park, uh, which is where they would later play their famous reunion shows in 2009. And they also recorded the Park Live album in 2010 there which I I think you and I both revisited or maybe checked out for the first time while preparing for this episode
0: it's crazy that that version of Park Life on the Park Life album is cacophony like the whole park is screaming the choruses
1: I think the version on that All the People uh, release that came out in 2009 is even better they get really raucous on that one and it's a fantastic performance Phil Daniels in particular is really great on it and I think uh, Phil Daniels being on this song in general is one of my very favorite things about the album. Period. I didn't say it when we introduced the song, but this is my number two on the record. Oh, it's mine great too! Song.
0: Snap. Cool. Y'all, y'all both in the top three club. Here.
1: And I love, I love that Phil Daniels is on this. Uh, how familiar are you with Phil Daniels, Phil?
0: Well, I'm mostly familiar with him for two things: this, okay, and Quadrophenia
1: yes quadrophenia which was a 1979 movie based on uh the who's rock opera of the same name which was like my first ever favorite album when i was like first getting into music and like Uh, oh it would be Alyssa,
0: it would be such a good album to do for what a concept (laughs) it's like one of the most like exactingly realized concept albums ever
1: It's really really great, great. and the accompanying movie is super good. It's one of my favorite films. Phil Daniels is great in it, and I just I think it's like you know Quadrophenia. Both the album and the movie are are other pieces of work that like take a very specific look at British culture, specifically the mod scene of the '60s. So bringing Phil Daniels in to narrate this song feels very much like an intentional nod to a bigger legacy of british pop music and it also kind of feels like the character he's playing in this song is a grown-up version of the character he played in quadrophenia oh totally i can see specifically that. very fun for me as a big fan of that movie and the album
0: bill daniels is like a, a, such a hero here i think i i have this idea that we should like do a little Phil Daniels off, like do our, our bad Phil Daniels impressions with, with our, our favorite, favorite line, line that he did on the song. I have, I have it in my head that, Trevor, you'll go first, then Alyssa, then me.
1: Sure, I could, I could read mine uh, right now. You want me to go?
0: Yeah, hit me with your bad Phil Daniels.
1: It's got nothing to do with your vor sprung dirt technique, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I said bad Phil Daniels impressions. You can't be... <laughs>
2: blowing us out of the
1: water like that trevor what can what can i say who's next
2: oh god it's me oh man i can't beat that oh all right i out when i want except on wednesdays when i get rudely awakened by the dustman
1: love that one that's (laughs) a great one (laughs) i love that he says i think about leaving my house oh my god yeah (laughs) That's
0: a great one. Uh, okay, I'm just gonna predefine before I do mine that, that brewers droop is a <laughs> it's it's a piece of British slang meaning somebody who is now unable to become uh, aroused because they have abused alcohol too much.
1: I did I did not know that. Good to know that.
0: So I'm gonna with that context in mind allow me to do mine. Mm, John's got brewers droop. He gets intimidated by the dirty pigeons. They love a bit of it. They love a bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> Literally some dude who can't get it up seeing pigeons macking on each other being like, well, I'm not so, not so great, those pigeons.
1: <laughs> really great song, though. I like that. I think, uh, Dylan, earlier you and I were talking about the sequencing of this record uh, and you told me that you thought this would be a very strong opening to the record. But there's something that I really like about it being like a little bit of the ways in. And uh, it's one of the uh, two two things I think it has in common with a record, another concept album that Alyssa mentioned earlier, The Black Parade by uh My Chemical Romance. <laughs> that album also has a title track, which is kind of like almost like the theme song of the whole record. And I think that's also like track four or maybe track five on the album. They feel like they come at exactly the same time.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I i definitely I think it was definitely more in the middle of the album. And it was so funny, uh, if you listen to the episode because Chrissy knew this song but had no idea that it was the title track. Because she had never listened to My Chemical Romance before,
0: <laughs> so then she would have known once you were getting into it. Oh, this song is must be on this record. Yeah, I know like, this she song. only
2: knew the first few lyrics, though. That was the funniest part.
1: <laughs> well, both both the Black Parade and the Park Life title track have become they both become kind of a bit of a minor meme, haven't they? Oh, because definitely. Because like I, I frequently see people like on social media respond to like long garbled posts with just the word park life
2: like i'm I'm looking at an,
1: an article on the independent right now titled russell brand park life emerges as the internet's favorite way to mock comedian turned revolutionary oh, so like and the tweet is russell brand's writing feels like someone is about to sh- shout park life at the end of every sentence The the sentence they quoted was This attitude of churlish indifference Seems like nerdish deference Contrasted with the belligerent antipathy Of the indigenous farm folk Who regard the (laughs) hippy-dippy interlopers The denizens of the shimmering tit temples As one face step away from transvestites
0: Life. Yeah, I hear it. <laughs> it's, it's so easy to imagine. It's very easy to imagine. I, here's, yeah. here's a testament to how good that Phil Daniels performance is. Having, having only ever listened to this record casually for my own enjoyment, something I never even considered until listening to the album for this episode is that, of course, Damon wrote these verses— like obviously he wrote the music and the songs, but Phil is so credible here and so embodies this role that I always didn't even think about it. Just accepted these words as coming straight out of his brain.
1: One hundred percent agreed. It sounds like they just put a microphone in front of him <laughs> or something. <laughs> It definitely does not feel premeditated in the slightest. It really does. Yeah, just definitely.
2: it feels like you're just out in the park with your friend, and he just has a running commentary.
1: Really great song. You want to move on to the next track? I really, I really, something I want to say before we move on is I really like the entire sequence of the album. That the title track feels like it uh, kicks off, and the next track isn't one of my favorite, but I think it's a good part of that sequence. Next up, we've got Bank Holiday.
2: Grandma,
0: this is older than the other material on this album. Graham Coxon noted the first time we recorded it was at a Radio 1 session for Mark Goodyear in July of 93. We hadn't really written it properly, so apparently there's some kind of a real early version floating around. Producer Stephen Street was very impressed and spoke with like great detail years later. By Graham's very fast and accurate use of his tremolo pedal on the song, so basically he's playing that riff, and then at the end of each riff, he hits that one jarring chord. Jar-! He would just stomp on and off just for that chord in the in the phrase of that song's riff each throughout the whole song, and he never missed a beat.
1: Yeah, I think Damon's songwriting plus his musicianship frequently ends up making him feel like the most like valuable member of Blur. But I'm almost tempted to say that Graham is the most like talented musician in the group.
0: Yeah, I think it's it, to me the the power levels of these two boys remain so even. Like it's mm-hmm. you can't even really imagine it tipping one way or the other within Blur. At least not I can't anyway. Although
1: although apparently in this session Damon had a bit of a harder time keeping up with uh with the track. He uh, allegedly struggled to sing the verses without running out of breath. And eventually, they made the decision to have him split the lyrics into two takes and pan them to the left and right channels to make him sing a sort of duet with himself
0: i mean this is a this we're in the classic uh Damon Albarn album theory of having to have a a burning little punk song on each record,
1: yeah, and in general, I don't love those i I don't feel particularly strongly about this one either. like I said, I like the role it plays in the album, but if I were looking for like fat to trim. This is probably one of the first songs I would cut. It's a fun time, but like, I don't, it, it, it really has never stuck with me too much.
2: I'm kind of feeling like this is a song that feels really juvenile. You know, this sounds like a song that a teenager would write with his punk band in the garage.
1: I like the energy to it, for
0: sure. Oh, a big time yeah. kind of energy, very youthful. Yeah. Some some pretty standard like Brit Poppy Damon slice of life stuff in these lyrics about the working class, you know, making the most of their time off from work and and some of it's cute and clever, but it doesn't it, it has some big things, some big ideas to stand up to on this record. So I also kind of like shrug this one off a little bit. I don't begrudge Albarn for having this format, this album format of his, but I do kind of wish this might have been used as more of a palette cleanser elsewhere. Like it feels like it's maybe piling on a little bit right after park life i would have liked to seen it after a more of a down tempo number
1: i i disagree with that i like the way this kind of four or five song run that we're currently in piles on top of each other i think this has like a similar flavor to park life where it feels very much like we're getting the perspective of the british people i also really love that opening line grandma needs new dentures to eat the crust on pizza
0: (laughs) very good uh, you want to move on to this next track? We got we got a track coming up called Bad Head.
1: Bad Head is my number one favorite song on this record. No kidding! Uh, Dylan, I've been looking forward to talking to you about this specifically, because I feel like I like this song for the same reasons you like. You were such a big fan of Blue Jeans on Modern Life is Rubbish. Oh, sure. It's just very quietly and subtly sophisticated. It's not as flashy as the rest of the tracks. uh, And it feels like a very effortless, but also... Like I said, a very subtle showcase for everything the band was like capable of doing at this time.
0: Well, I do know about the song that it features the Mellotron organ, which of course later would get a big showcase on, on Melancholy Hill. Uh, and the title The "Bad Head" refers to some British slang for having a hangover,
1: right? And I think that's one of the I think one of the better instances of sequencing on the record is to put this track right after Bank Holiday. It definitely feels like the hangover. In the wake of the revelry that was going on in that last track,
0: definitely, definitely. I, Graham Coxon agrees with you too. He says the song is good for a hangover, and that it's like Nick Drake is good for a hangover.
1: There's nothing abrasive about it. I'm also a big fan of Nick Drake, so I think it's no surprise to find him citing an artist like that when talking about this song. I definitely agree that they have similar vibes. It's a, it's so pleasant the vibe on this track. It's got a, it's got a kind of an easy listening vibe to
0: it that's very underpinned by that kind of almost cheesy, but still really lovely brass, uh, like intro The dun, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. but the central, the central metaphor here, I really like, and I really identify with Trevor, the idea of like falling out of touch with somebody and feeling really sad about that. But you've decided that the argument that would happen if you, if you tried to like reconnect with them after all that time would not be worth the grief so like the best case is to just keep fighting through that feeling of loss until it goes away like you're tupping out a bad hangover really really good really smart like
1: writerly stuff here yeah and that's a pretty complex subject to tackle too on one of the less like flashy songs on the record too like i said there this song is very great in a very subtle kind of way i think and between the Mellotron and those horns, I'm getting a lot of, like,
0: 60s and 70s flourishes here. There's there's something about this song that feels like it, it owes a lot to that easy-listening pop of that era. Mm-hmm.
1: I've thrown this on this song on, like, every easy-listening playlist I've ever made. Although it was kind of like a grower for me. I don't think this is one that sticks out at people on first or second listen.
2: I find it a little too relatable. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've, I've had some bad days that sound exactly like this, <laughs> and maybe not specifically like a hangover, but definitely like bad depression days where you really just don't have the energy to deal with anyone's problems, let alone your own.
1: I've also always seen this one kind of as touching on that very well-known British tradition of like keeping a stiff upper lip. Mm. oh good point yeah suffering through it you know you got to keep your head up and you got to wear your bad head (laughs) 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 definitely drink some water if you're gonna put down a few
0: drink some water all right be nice to your bodies 2021 is upon us we got to start being kind to ourselves
1: great track do you have anything else you want to say about it before we move on no let's talk
0: about uh, another of the you know maybe maybe slightly minor seeming tracks here the debt collector
1: Yes, the deck collector—a little instrumental interlude, kind of right in the middle of the album. I feel like we're still in the same kind of mid-album lull that kicked off with "Park Life" and has been going through the this series of tracks that we're discussing. I really, really like this one. Actually, it's always been a big favorite of mine, despite being like kind of a slight little track.
0: It's got a really cool, like you know, behind-the-scenes
1: picture here yeah i've never heard about this so tell me about it
0: so it was recorded live in the room with the full band which was not their style at the time uh, alongside the brass ensemble the kick horns and they just they barely did any overdubbing after the fact it's mostly just everyone in the same room mic'd and playing together and alex james says i think we may have had to drop one bass note later like there was barely anything added
1: yeah, and to speak to it being a live recording, you can even hear Graham at the beginning counting everyone in, going one Mississippi, two Mississippi, which, which is kind great. of feels like it feels interesting to hear a such a distinctly British musician using the whole Mississippi count in, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, one Camden Essex, two. Camden-Essex. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> Apparently, it was Graham's idea to record this one live. He said that. I wanted it to have the ambience of a Tom Waits song. That's also why I'm stamping on a tambourine like a busker, which is great. I like, never had that image in my head, but now I can't get it out, and it's it's a really fantastic image. It is a little slight, but it's pretty nice, I think. I kind of wish that there were maybe one
0: or two less of these like bits and pieces songs so that this one could get its due to stand out a little bit, because I think it's got a great like little bit of a pre-rock sensibility to it. It, t- it makes me picture like british seaside carnivals like dreamland and margate where the first demon days was held or like pleasure beach and blackpool you know step right up and win a
1: stuffed giraffe or whatever it feels a lot to me like it belongs on a soundtrack to like a playstation one era jrpg like i I could imagine this playing while i'm browsing a shop for some some potions and phoenix downs and what have you
0: (laughs) i could see that for sure Alyssa. any thoughts on uh, on the the debt collector
2: nothing deep really just that it's a nice interlude i like it i
1: just i love that the album has all these little interludes Uh, like these little instrumental pieces with like very evocative titles they really add a lot of character to the album
0: you might even rope this next song in with that group although it's perhaps a bit different of a flavor let's talk about far out I, spy
1: in the night sky, don't die. I definitely associate this song more with the little interludes and asides than i do with the rest of the tracks despite that it has like vocals and lyrics i never it took me years to realize that this was alex singing though I don't know. Don't know why it never occurred to me that it wasn't Damon, but I just. Oh, I think their voices are kind of similar. Now I obviously hear it, but back in the day, I always thought this one was just Damon on vocals.
0: Well, the song, as it appears on this record, was one of the last things they recorded for Parklife. Although an earlier version had been attempted the previous autumn, which Graham Coxon described as a longer, heavier, more electric version. And yeah, Far Out was written and sung by bassist Alex James. I didn't know that until just now, actually, until we were researching. I also just kind of glossed over the the vocal difference here. It was the very first Blur song to have only one member credited as
1: its writer. I never knew that. uh, But allegedly Alex wrote this one uh, about and inspired by his passion as, uh, as like a hobbyist astronomer. He's always been really into space and stuff. Hmm. So the verses are built around two lists, one of Alex's favorite moons and uh, one of his favorite stars. He hadn't written an ending, though, so uh, it was actually producer Stephen Street who came up with the idea of looping Alex singing Sun, Sun, Sun and fading it for the outro. Love that outro. It's and I too- gotta say, always really loved this song back in like my
0: early days with blur i was always sticking this thing on playlist there's something about the like it's got such an off-kilter earworm in that organ line it's so like kind of it's like loungy but a little creepy and a little like ethereal and i think that alex sounds beautiful here and he
1: found such a gorgeous melody here
2: oh yeah i find myself humming this like just randomly it's really nice.
1: I'm also... I've always been a big fan of this one. I think it does... A, I, think, I think it's got a lot of similar qualities as, like, the Deck Collector, where it just adds, like, a lot of character to the album, despite the fact that it's not really doing too much uh, by itself.
0: I think that there's something about the flavor of this song that might be a good gateway song for a Gorillaz fan to get into a Blur song, because it feels quite unlike other Blur songs to me. It's. It's got a great vibe, it's very gentle, and it's very trippy, and, uh... Yeah, there's like a version of this episode where I'm in like a more <laughs> a more of a, 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 a clashy kind of like, you know, shove my opinions in your face move where I might have even like tried to edge this one in my top three. I really like this song.
1: It's one of the songs that I feel like I've spent more time with than the other tracks, oddly enough. So I definitely see where you're coming from. And I've been particularly excited to talk to you about this one for the podcast because it actually probably has my favorite blur trivia behind it. Hit me with that hot trivia trevor so are you familiar with the beagle 2 not at all great because what i'm about to tell you might blow your mind but this is probably the only song on the record that has been performed on two separate planets dylan oh shit i love where this is going so the beagle 2 was this uh inoperative british mars lander which was sent to mars as part of the european space agency's 2003 mars express mission so inoperative
0: and as in literally a craft takes it there dumps it on the ground and then it just sits there forever
1: well we'll get to that but the original goal of the mission was to look for signs of past life on the planet and slightly under it too but in addition to that, the Lander also transported several works of art by notable English artists. Also, I think that included uh, a painting by Damien Hirst and a remix of the song Far Out by Blur. Uh, in, the late, in the late 90s, Blur were also asked to write a short nine-note call sign melody for the Lander to play upon reaching its destination, <laughs> which was also released uh, as a 13-era B-side
0: weird
1: so so you haven't you didn't come across this remix of far out while doing your research no i didn't that's so cool cool. i I was hoping we could take a listen to it right now because i think it's pretty bonkers and kind of like a very fun way
0: okay i'll get into the mind of a martian hearing this for the first time (laughs)
1: <laughs> so many
2: moons. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs>
1: So it's so it's got that whole new chorus and like general, a General, whole...
0: general, we must not attack the Earth people. <laughs> Their song is a bop. General, we must not attack.
1: It's a really good remix, and I remember really loving it when I first discovered it. F-
0: Far, out could have could have been a fucking single. That could
1: have been a single, yeah. Oh my god. But gosh. I, I also I wanted to talk to you about the whole like Beagle Two mission because it's it's pretty interesting. It was uh, it was originally launched in 2003 on board the ESA's uh, Mars Express orbiter, and it was intended to touch down on the planet on Christmas Day. Uh, so it reached its deployment target, and it detached safely from the orbiter and made its way down to the landing site on the planet's surface, where it was supposed to announce its arrival with Blur's little nine-note call sign. However... After the, uh, the Beagle 2 sent the message that it had deployed from the orbiter, the ESA never heard from it again. Oh, what? no. <laughs> until, oh, no. until 2016, like 12 Twist? years later, what? <laughs> a, NASA, a NASA-operated camera that was orbiting Mars spotted the Beagle 2 intact on the surface of the planet, which means that in all likelihood, Blur's Beagle 2 call sign and the Far Out Remix have indeed been played on oh gosh.
0: man what a saga
1: yeah who who knew that there was there was so much a story to far out you know like the one of the most slightest songs on the album
2: that's insane i uh, i love space so much
1: <laughs> so does alex james Good. Cool, <laughs> space and cheese space and cheese i was just gonna say that yeah
0: uh let's talk about uh a pretty big one a pretty big one on this record um, to the um, end um, This was issued uh, as the second single. It it made it to number 16 on the UK Singles Chart. The song's lyric kind of cleverly looks at the breaking point of a a relationship. Uh, From the moment that Damon played this song to the rest of the band at the piano, Blur was convinced of its brilliance. A decision was made to sideline producer Stephen Street, who produced everything else on this record, in favor of New Order and Pet Shop Boys producer Stephen Haig. So a Steven for a Steven, both with a a PH. A
1: real Steven swap.
0: Uh, And and the band was was seeking a soaring, epic feel that they felt was outside of Street's wheelhouse.
1: Right, and Haig kind of pushed the band to fill out the arrangements with unconventional instruments. Damon got on a vibraphone, Graham played clarinet, and Haig himself contributed a little bit of accordion. Then for the song's gentle French-language response vocals... Uh, they initially courted Charlotte Gainsborough for those, but ultimately the job went to Laetitia Sadier of Stereolab. I know which you're a, band a big Stereolab guy. I'm a I'm a big Stereolab fan. I got into them in a big way earlier this year, actually. Uh, but they also approached yay-yay uh, uh, pioneer Francois Hardy, who would eventually be used in like a, a a later recorded version of the song that was kind of structured like a French and English duet version. And that was issued as a single in France as, to the end, parentheses, La Comedie.
0: I listened to that version and I thought it was really fun. I thought that, was, that one was That's really cool. That's definitely
1: a good version of the song. Uh, reportedly, when the band first heard the completed mix of this one, Alex James broke down and cried. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Maybe he was going through some stuff. Who knows?
2: Probably. Know.
1: Maybe it was
0: unrelated and he was just thinking about his favorite stars and moons.
1: <laughs> yeah. Getting real emotional about cheese. I've never really been a huge fan of this one, though. Like, I think there are just too many other blur songs that sound similar to it or have a similar atmosphere. And I prefer all of those to it. So this one kind of suffers a bit from that for me personally.
0: I like the song quite a bit. The word I would kind of use to describe in the end is classy. It's got a really restrained and sophisticated feel to it. And, you know, to me, the entire song is kind of built on that very clever turn of language that happens in the chorus. Because it's a song about breaking up, but the imagery is all about the warmth and the seclusion of being in love and all the good times. And then the breakup kind of shows up as as a punchline. With Damon kind of, he triumphantly croons, uh, well, it looks like we might have made it. And then you're like, oh, great, they made it. And then he comes back <laughs> down to earth with that to the end. And it's kind of a, oh, man, yeah, this is a, this is about something beautiful falling apart. And I do like what, what I know she's pretty quiet here, but what Letitia Sater is doing on this, I think is like really, really interesting and pretty. And it really contrasts with what Damon's doing, you know? Damon's kind of doing his painful... Brit pop yelp, and then she's almost whispering underneath him. Very interesting.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with you that I think my favorite part of the song is that little twist that comes at the end of the chorus. And I obviously think it's really cool that there's a blur song with the singer from Stereolab on it. I had completely forgotten, or maybe I never even knew in the first place, that this was Letitia. Like, so when getting into Stereolab, I was never like, oh, yeah, that singer who was on that blur song. I actually had to, like, I. Returned to like blurs, like liner notes or something at some point after getting into Stereo Lab. And I was like, wait a second, that was the singer from Stereo Lab on the blur song? And my (laughs) mind was blown. So I can definitely appreciate that aspect for it. But this one, it like leans towards being a little bit of a skip for me.
0: I think that Stephen Hague really was a good choice, though. I think the production here is so good that Vibraphone sounds amazing.
1: I, I do, I do like the production on this one a lot. It's cool that it sounds very different from everything else on the album to the point where you can kind of assume that or like guess that they used a different producer for it. I don't know how much it feels like it fits in on this very British album, though. You know, maybe there's something about the way it's approaching relationships that's very british that i don't really understand as an american but there's just something that feels out of place like this very french influenced song being on the quintessential british album i could see that i could see that Uh, to
0: me it's not unlike badhead this feels like another callback to that sound that that you know, late 60s, early 70s, easy listening vocal pop sound, you know, with the, it's romantic, it's very pretty, it's got maybe a little bit of schmaltz and some theatricism, you know, with the big, looks like we might have made it, the, the, the big vocal turn on there, you know, there's something about that that's like, actually, what it reminds me of is a song that Damon, from that era that Damon actually calls out on Maryland, uh, Forever and Ever by Demi Rousseau. I think that, like, it's clear that Damon has, like, a real affection for this kind of slightly schmaltzy pop. And he has not yet necessarily turned into, like, the crooner Damon that we would come to know in especially, like,
1: Plastic Beach Forward gorillas albums. But you can hear mm-hmm. the seeds of it in this song for sure. Yeah, it is, it is very proto-crooner Damon. I, I like that observation.
2: I love this song. I... Like, I don't know what it is about it exactly, you know, just how it starts with almost like an elevator music kind of thing, and then it just becomes almost an epic about a breakup. Um, I I love the songs that are breakup songs that are, like, happy to be broken up, <laughs> you know? It feels like, a, like someone's making a healthy choice in their life to me, and as someone who listens to a lot of concept albums and tries to find story in them, this almost feels sort of like a continuation um, to the end of the century song oh, you know especially so with the title you know and everything
1: they do really feel like they're hitting similar narrative beats yeah that's why a very I good think point of that? yeah that's a great point
2: you know almost like the French is like the TV on in the background as they're like okay I oh, think it's I time to that. end this that's you know great.
0: see that's why you get those big what a concept butts, <laughs> so Alyssa we can't compete we can't <laughs> compete with your concept album analysis <laughs>
2: That's
0: what I'm here for. (laughs) I'm here to talk about London Loves with you guys. So this song found its origin in, in the in a synthesizer, which is featured on its intro, the Yamaha QY10. Damon had bought one from a secondhand store while he was touring America, and then the next morning he woke up and ordered Dave Roundtree, who was quite hungover to come to his room and teach him how to play it and dave Dave recalled it in this quote he said it took him a while it's a little machine with a keyboard a drum machine a sampler i think it's got a groupie on there too
1: i remember damon kept asking show me what that bit does again a bit maddening really so in one way this is like a classic damon story i feel like you know him getting a new synthesizer and just annoying the hell out of everyone with (laughs) it What's the what's the piano player in the band doing? Going to the drummer and like asking him to teach him how to play a synthesizer? What was going on here?
0: Well, Dave already knew how to program
1: drum machines and stuff. He knew more about synthesizers at this time than Damon did. After after tapping out the uh, intro though on his used Yamaha, he composed the rest of it, uh, allegedly inspired by the Tom Tom Club and lyrically by the novel London Fields by Martin Amis. In particular, the book's antagonist, Keith Talent who's like a, a toxic creep who drives an obnoxious sports car. <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite uh, part of the song, I think, is Graham's very noisy solo in the middle. He said he approached that with a very specific influence in mind, which was Robert Fripp's solo on Fame by David Bowie. And in fact, the working title of the song was Fripp. Oh, I totally hear it, too. I think, like... I initially read this and I kind of forgot about this piece of trivia and I, I thought it was about uh, Robert Fripp's Solo in Heroes by David Bowie. So when I went back to listen to the song, I was like, that sounds nothing like the guitar solo in Heroes. But now <laughs> now that I think about fame, yeah, he, he really nailed it. I feel like it's almost like the first taste of the style we would see Graham lean a lot further into later in the band's career. Once they'd gotten all the Brit pop out of their system and they needed a new direction. Like, I think this song really kind of previews the sounds he would work with on songs like beetle bum and stuff like that
0: mm-hmm. yet tone wise it's the most 13y thing here i think definitely i get less of a tom tom club vibe from the song and more of a remain in light vibe here there's a very looping groove to it mm-hmm. i gotta say though that here's the spot where if i was looking for a reason to kind of hold blur out of my own personal great band canon This is is a bit of a piece of damning evidence to do that with. I think that Graham and Damon seem totally game to step into this, like, you know, out of the comfort zone, into this talking heads, afro jam, beat, you know, dance rock place. But Dave and Alex, I feel like, are scratching their heads a little bit here. I think Alex is doing a very feeble... Tina Weymouth impression here. I think Dave ships the bed entirely with like a very straightforward rock beat when the song is really begging, just crying out for any kind of like off-accent beat, any kind of polyrhythm, and he's not serving any of that up. Dave and Alex, they remain to me, even with their like high points on this record, significantly tailing Damon and Graham as in their vision. Even as we enter into this band's creative peak and it feels like it might be a tough barrier for me to ever get over truly
1: embracing blur is like a favorite band. I don't know. I won't come down quite as hard on the rhythm section as you are with this track, but I do think they are lagging a little bit behind Damon and Graham on this one. Like at best, I think the work they're doing on this track is very serviceable and it kind of just blends together and into the background. There is something I think appropriate about like such a mechanically focused song. You know, a lot of it is about cars having this very steady workman-like beat behind it. I, I would have enjoyed seeing them kind of try something a little more experimental with it, though. I agree.
0: There's stuff I really love, though. I Again, that Graham solo fucking rips. And I also think that it's a very yeah. good, like, very clever Damon lyric throughout. Especially, I love the opening lines. A malady has taken him over, coughing tar in his Japanese motor.
1: Lyrically, this one has always kind of, for some reason, struck me as being a send-up of, like... A certain kind of English man who thinks that simply by virtue of being English, he has a bit of a James Bond quality to him (laughs) despite the fact that he's really just like an ordinary person with a mundane life.
0: Yeah, even maybe a bit of a douche, you know?
1: Yeah, and I think the traffic report plays into that really well. There's that traffic report sample that they kind of layer into the end of the song. And I think if you're not listening to it too carefully, it almost sounds like a secret agent briefing. Like It starts out (laughs) very seriously like, to take extra care, which sounds like, I don't know, like a, a Q character or something <laughs> has just given James Bond all of his weapons, and he's about to send out on this mission. But then as you listen more carefully, you realize that all you're hearing is just boring traffic details. And I just get this specific image of this douchey guy sitting in his car fantasizing that he's like James Bond and going on adventures while spacing out to these traffic reports. Love that. Love yeah. that, Reed. That's great. It's. It, I really like that whole ending. It gets really drony in a very satisfying way.
2: I feel like it's probably the weakest song on the album. Like, I I like it. You know, there, there's a lot of good stuff about it, but it doesn't hold my attention like a lot of other ones do.
1: I can feel it, man. I think in general we're in a part of the album where like it it kind of fares a little weaker than the the tracks surrounding it because after this we move into my least favorite proper song on the album, "Trouble in the Message Center."
0: I, I do think, at the very least, this song has a pretty interesting backstory. Let's get into that a little bit. Uh, I,
1: I know that it was the final one written for the album.
0: Correct. Damon wrote uh, Message Center after the initial sessions for Park Life were finished, while he was on a three-month tour to promote the Sunday Sunday single for Modern Life is Rubbish. Uh, he'd gone on, on record that he wrote the song inspired by the youthful substance abuse that came alongside the rise of rape culture in Great Britain in the 90s, although those themes lyrically, I think, are a little bit oblique here. But I don't Stephen, get that at all, yeah. Yeah, me either. Stephen Street reportedly hated this song, and he, and he petitioned the band to keep it off the record, although the other members uh, ultimately stepped up and voted him down and kept it here. But can you get into the, the weird backstory in this? I think it's
1: kind of interesting. Sure. Going back to those lyrics, Damon uh, allegedly wrote them in his hotel room on the back of a receipt from his, his check-in. And he incorporated phrases from the items found around the desk area into the lyrics with message center, local and direct, and room to room, all coming from buttons on the telephone. And uh, the lyric, strike him softly away from the body from a pack of matches. That is very interesting. <laughs> I love that. That's great. The album's booklet even includes a photocopy of the receipt from that hotel stay, but uh, it sounds like they didn't obscure the personal phone number of the the guy who directed the video for Girls and Boys, Kevin Godley, and so he wound up having to change his number after just getting bombarded with all these prank calls from <laughs> Blur fans.
0: Come on, Blur fans. What?
1: <laughs> mean. I, I would have loved to hear some of those calls.
0: Yeah, you get you like girls who like boys who like girls.
1: Do you have Prince Albert in a can? <laughs> I got. I gotta say though, as much as I don't like this song as much as the other tracks on the album, I still like it a lot more than my least favorite tracks from Modern Life Is Rubbish and Leisure. Like I wouldn't put this track down there with Oily Water or something like that. I just don't like it as much as the other songs on Park Life, and I. Would feel fine if they had decided to ultimately heed Stephen Street's advice and cut it from the album.
2: I'm gonna have to concur. I also think this is a weak song. You know, it's it's. I listen to it, but you know, it's not one I'm gonna show to anyone.
0: You know, I never thought much of this one, but it might be the biggest grower for me in reapproaching this re- this record for the episode. It feels to me like more of a heavier. Alternative rock moment for Park Life that might have been like necessary at this point on the record for me. I also really like how new wavy this is. Like if Badhead and and to the end kind of saw Blur and Damon playing with these late '60s and early '70s sound between the like Tom Tom Club of London Loves and now the the Message Center new wave thing. It feels like Park Life has kind of moved into the 1980s, which is something I really like. Uh, I also like how the verses start out with these like declarative personal statements like I am the message center, I am a manager. It reminds me a little bit of how Damon starts those verses on ribbons for Maryland with that those similar identifying declarations. I am the maypole, I am the warhorse. Sure, yeah. I think my favorite element here is Damon's little spoken word delivery on the hook. It's a
1: move I wish he'd do a little bit more of in some of these blur rockers. It really does it for me. It's definitely, like I said, not a track that I really dislike. It's just one that doesn't really feel like it measures up to... A lot of what i consider to be the better songs on the record i just feel like it might have been a bit of a smoother transition to go directly from london loves into the next track we're going to be talking about let's talk about it right now clover over dover
0: This blew my mind when I read this. This was originally attempted with a ska-influenced arrangement.
1: Oh Oh my god, what must that have sounded like? Fucking insane. (laughs) One, just Blur doing ska in general feels really weird to me. But if you had to ask me what song would have sounded the least appropriate to do in a ska style... I probably would have picked Clover Over Dover. Definitely. And, and, you know, that
0: that attempt fell apart. And then producer Stephen Street took the lead on kind of directing the arrangements of this version of it, which led to very heavy use of studio overdubs. Uh, the lyrics depict a man sitting in a clover patch on a cliff in Dover, contemplating jumping to his death. Very uncharacteristic subject matter for Damon Albarn. Sounds like somebody else
1: didn't really get any phone calls on his birthday.
0: But maybe it makes a little bit more sense when you hear this next part, Trevor, because Damon's inspiration for this, like, tableau of existential drama on a cliffside was apparently a direct reference to Quadrophenia, when Jimmy, the main character played by Phil Daniels of Parklife fame, considers killing himself.
1: That does make a lot of sense. Quadrophenia is very well known for having that ambiguous ending of Jimmy's scooter going off the cliffs of Dover and not really... Depicting whether he kills himself or whether he gets off at the last minute, I love I love the Park Life connection here too. Yeah, I always like to think that uh, that Damon casting Phil Daniels on this album is almost his way of like saving Jimmy from his ambiguous fate that may <laughs> or may not have happened at the end of that album. I like that a lot. This song though has become like a fan favorite, uh, although it was never included in Blur's set list uh, for their live shows particularly because it was considered too difficult to play yeah and like if you're if your
0: producer is building your arrangements it's probably gonna have like you playing five guitar parts on it that you can't yep. quite
1: do live you know they did finally wheel it out in March of 2019 during a surprise three song set at an Africa express show where they played it in kind of like a stripped-down acoustic form.
0: Wow, I remember when this happened because it was such a big moment in the Blur fandom, Trevor, that the waves kind of reverberated into the Gorillaz fandom.
1: Yeah, I remember hearing about it too, although I remember having mixed feelings about how I would feel about going to a a three-song Blur set and seeing them pull out Clover Over Dover. On one <laughs> hand, very cool, but on the other hand, not really something that I would be in the audience requesting.
0: Okay, but imagine on the shoes on the other foot, it's a, it's a surprise gor- three-song gorilla
1: set, and they trot out New Genius. You're freaking the fuck out. I, but I, I feel a lot stronger about New Genius than I feel about Clover Over Dover. I do like this song. I think it's one of the more interesting cuts on the second half of the album, and I like everything going on in it musically. It's just never really risen to the top of the pack for me i i consider it to be a very strong album cut but maybe not much more than that
0: i think it's a really beautiful piece
1: but it definitely feels like the credit here does go to steven street because i think the bones of
0: this song are maybe a little flimsy and the song is like very much elevated by the density of the all of the melodic ideas that are going into it and around the margins like it's it's interesting enough to see Damon tackling a suicide song in principle, but it definitely does not feel like as a writing exercise nearly as confident as the other more like observationally astute writing on the record. Um yeah, it's but still it's quite pretty. It's it's like arguably a very a very like nice sounding moment on the record.
1: Yeah, and we talked about how it is a pretty significant shift in tone from the rest of the songs, but I do think that even though the subject matter is a little darker, it kind of retains some of the whimsy and romance of the rest of the album. And the way that they those two flavors end up mixing really reminds me of... Uh, a band by somebody, uh, fronted by somebody who has only just recently been introduced to the Gorillaz project, really reminds me of The Cure a lot.
2: I really do like the song. I'm a big fan of the harpsichord. Uh, so
1: Very great. It was a great opening. Yeah, that's opening. definitely what sticks out to you the most, I think, the oh, harpsichord. Oh, yeah, and
2: I do love how it fades into waves at the end. I, I, I'm, I'm always a big fan of, uh, you know, just bringing the ocean in whenever someone can.
1: I om- I almost forgot to comment on that, but yeah, that is also one of my favorite things on the album—the kind of sound design that we're treated to at the end. That's a nice touch, bro.
0: You gotta do quadrupedia on what a concept. That's like yeah, a- that album.
1: That album is like half sound effects, but <laughs> in yeah, a great for way. Sure.
0: It's great.
2: I can yeah. almost guarantee you that it is on the list.
1: <laughs> Sick. Okay, I'll be tuning in. Speaking up. of speaking of the ocean, though, let's hop across the pond for this next track and talk about Magic America. Has a simple dream
0: because it is plan Bay buildings in the sky and the air is sugar free and everyone's very friendly. Well even if only in our dreams, Trevor <laughs> uh, the song grew out of an ongoing in-studio in discussion the band was having throughout the Park Life sessions about their legendarily miserable 1992 American tour. They
1: still weren't over it, Trevor. <laughs> we, we talked about that a lot on the Modern Life episode. The
0: lyrics speak to this phenomenon that was arising in the UK during the Thatcher era of middle-class Brit British people who were fetishizing American culture and American outlooks. You know the Reagan era and the Thatcher era so closely tied together socially and you know that this was kind of a symptom of that that ties that bind. The the title and, itself came from an Italian pornography channel of the same name, Magic America.
1: It is a naughty little album. Damon that's, he <laughs> <laughs> That's a great piece of trivia. And I wanted to say about the whole like fetishization of American culture by the Brits. I had no idea that that was a thing uh, when I was like 16 year- 16 years old listening to this album. But I think to this song's credit, it really does a great job of conveying that to people who aren't familiar with British culture in a way that I think maybe some of these songs don't do as well. If if nothing else, this song is quite educational in a way, I would say. Yeah, it definitely gives you a glimpse into that culture. I will say that those
0: people generally are looked on with, like, much disdain by other British people.
1: (laughs) This one's another character study. It uh, features a character named Bill Barrett, which is named for Barrett Developments, which I guess guess was like a construction company or something, whose cheap new construction Barrett Homes led to a developing boom in the 80s and 90s. Gotcha. And when asked in an interview why the band continued to take swipes at America, Graham Coxon replied, That's all part of Blur. Theme park is death. Mall is death. One of my favorite <laughs> quotes we <we've laughs>
0: got. God. A really good quote.
1: <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's that... Uh, one of the highlights of this song... In my opinion, at least, is that really crazy, bloopy synthesizer solo that Damon gets in towards the end of it. Which was literally inspired by the theme song to a 1970s cult children's cartoon, Rhubarb. I love that synthesizer solo, too. In a way, it almost feels like a very early proto-Gorillas moment. You know, like that's a real 2D-ass sounding synthesizer solo.
0: Oh, totally. Absolutely. Very phase one, very super bloopy yeah i feel like uh, you know i'm getting i I got into magic america this time around way more than i've ever been into it uh and i maybe that's maybe that's proof that my
1: defenses against blur are just starting to to wear down trevor it's one of the songs that i kind of almost frequently forget is on the album but when i listen to it i really do find myself enjoying it quite a bit in no small part due to that synth solo Tell me if this makes
0: sense to you. I would say that like Magic America, it doesn't feel like one of the great Blur songs necessarily, but it feels like a great Blur song for Blur fans if that makes any sense. Like there's something yes. very like if you like Blur, you're going to love this next one about it.
1: Yeah, it's got a lot of it's got a lot of the qualities that people like about the band. And I think they're all in really great form on this track. Some some really good writing here. I think my favorite lyric, and probably the lyric I've been thinking about
0: the most in these last couple of weeks, is when Barrett, you know, he comes home from the mall, he's eaten himself sick, he spent <laughs> all of his money, he, he sits down, he turns on the TV, and Damon remarks that he found love on Channel 44, which is a lyric that's that's really only targeted at the British listener. Um because something about the UK that, that is that they never really adopted cable television like we did over here. Like, almost all of the TV watching in the UK happens on the big terrestrial channels. You know, BBC 1 through 4, Channel 4, mm-hmm. Sky, ITV. And so, like, in order to get to Channel 44, you have to be one of these people who, like, who wants who wants to be an American so much that they bought the cable package. And that lyric is, like, it's so bleak. It's just the saddest little dream by the saddest little man. Like... Oh man, maybe if my television dial went all the way up to forty four, I'd find love out there somewhere. It's so it's so pathetic and sympathetic. It's like sympathetic. It's very, it's
1: very like I feel for the character as I'm turning my nose up at him. That lyric has always reminded me of Borat. Like the way he the way he goes to America and falls in love with Pamela uh, Anderson after after seeing her on Baywatch. Yeah, I can see
2: that. <laughs> It's a funny song for sure, but it is really sad too. Especially just the part where he sent postcards to everyone he's ever known. Like like, imagine someone from your high school that you haven't seen in years sending you a postcard. Like I ugh. It's it's embarrassing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's like the nineteen ninety five version of a desperate mass text
1: or something. Oh
2: god, exactly. Mm
1: -hmm. Do you have any Elissa, do you have any thoughts on Borat?
2: I have zero thoughts on 4. <laughs> Let's move on to
1: the next song then, Jubilee.
2: This book tells butane,
0: the story of a dim-witted, butane-huffing,
1: directionless and prospectless 17-year-old boy. <laughs> Right, and the title of the song and the protagonist's name comes from the fact that he was born in 1977 when Queen Elizabeth celebrated the 25th anniversary of her ascension to the throne, or her Jubilee Days. And uh, Damon was apparently inspired to write the song after getting into a chat with a group of teenage Blur fans after a gig who divulged to him that they enjoyed recreational chemical huffing, which both troubled and shocked him. This feels like a this feels like a bit of a gorilla z detail, doesn't it? Yeah, Yeah. definitely, definitely. I think this one's pretty cool though. Uh, It reminds me of two uh, other songs. The first being uh, "Suffragette City" by David Bowie. Can I guess the other one?
0: Can I guess the other one? Is
1: is it "Surrender" by Cheap Trick? It is not "Surrender" by Cheap Trick. It's another song that I actually wanted to talk to Alyssa about. It's my second. My chemical romance reference of the episode. It is uh this song reminds me of Teenagers again from oh. the Black Parade because both songs are kind of late installments on their respective concept albums that are in some ways being about kind of like terrified of teenagers.
2: Yeah, honestly that fits so well. And honestly, for me, what I think of when I hear this song is Longview by Green Day.
1: Okay, that also feels like a pretty appropriate song. Yeah,
2: but you know, that would be more like from the actual Jubilees perspective rather than (laughs) people looking in on this.
0: Unfortunately, I definitely get Surrender by Cheap Trick in this verse melody. Uh, The the Damon melody here, um, to me, it owes, it stands so much on the shoulder. Of the mother told me, yes, she told me. uh, It's the same movement, which is very distracting to me. I could see some similarities. Yeah, I find it it really distracting. uh, You know, but but which is a bit of a a shame for me because I think I this character study is some of the best work on the record. I think
1: it's definitely one that's always stuck out to me. Like every time I've listened to the album, it, it almost feels like a lot of the more. Uh, explicit character studies are kind of front loaded, but I like that we get this one at like the penultimate moment of the album, too. And yeah, you I think get Bill Barrett
0: and Jubilee here at the yeah. end to kind yep, of yep, round yep. up the cast, you
1: know? I, yeah. This
0: really reminds me of that movie, Citizen Ruth, the first Alexander Payne movie where Laura Dern uh, similarly plays a, a, like a paint huffing real loser with like some <laughs> few redeeming qualities. And like, kind of like that film, I really respect this song's willingness to be kind of unsympathetically direct about how it feels about its prot- protagonist and i even like the moment that really pushes it over the top for me is when you meet jubilee's dad billy banker who like seems like a real uptight prick too
1: so it's i, I think really, son's a slob i love a story where kind of everybody sucks you know yeah mm-hmm. yeah and we also i think we should also mention that this is yet another of damon's uh video game songs which i didn't remember when we were talking about Pac-Man oh my on the uh, God, song machine right. reviews, but at one point in this song, Jubilee just plays on his computer games. <laughs> yeah, wow. And I think we even get like a Space Invaders sample or something, right? I love that like Super very bleepy bloopy part. Though. It's great. Yeah, it doesn't
0: seem like it, it doesn't seem like it's going to work out for Jubilee. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Maybe he'll go off to college and actually do something, but
0: <laughs> once you're huffing at 17, I don't know.
1: Doesn't seem like it. Doesn't seem like it's a good, It's going in a good direction.
2: No, no, it does not.
1: Let's talk about the direction that this album is still going in, though. We've got a big one up next. This is a low.
2: <laughs> and into
1: the sea,
0: my number one on the record trevor
2: me too this
0: people oh, people love this song <laughs> hell yeah uh this song has a big story behind it so let's go there first it began its life as a four-word lyric we are a low we are a low with kind of vague notions that it might be about heroin addiction and kind of nowhere else to go with it uh Nevertheless, the band loved those four words enough and the and the chord turn around it enough to build an entire backing track for the song. Like across the full park life session, they kept coming back to work on this backing track as like, you know, an, an, an epic climax, which is the shape that it was starting to take. And Dave he he was like experimenting. Dave flipped his drums over and tried playing them behind his back to get more of an off-kilter feeling. And Graham, the iconic solo on this song, Graham performed it sitting cross-legged on the floor, inches in front of his amp with it turned up to max volume to just kind of, like, assault himself with his own solo. Uh, But Damon was stuck. He could not figure out a verse melody, he couldn't write any words beyond those four lines, and ultimately he felt like so kind of unsure with what to do that he put his foot down and he said to the band and to the producer Stephen Street that the song had to be scrapped from the album because he could not finish it. And Stephen Street like stuck his chest right back out at Damon and refused. He even threatened to walk off the project if they abandoned the song.
1: So clearly he had very good feelings about it. It sounds like the entire band was really intent on getting this one done, and it was only Damon's frustration that was kind of preventing it from all happening. Right. Soon after that, though, Damon was hospitalized for a hernia operation, and Alex James gave him a get well present in the form of a handkerchief with a shipping map of Britain printed on it. And uh, Alex later explained, We always found the shipping forecast soothing, we used to listen to it in America to remind us of home. It's very good for a hangover. Good cure for insomnia too. Can we just like stop and acknowledge what a what a
0: beautiful moment that is for like Alex and Damon shippers in the blur fandom and how sweet of a gesture between friends that is. Like your your front man gets, uh, has to go to the hospital, get an operation for his hernia. And you have this incredibly thoughtful gift of a handkerchief of the, the thing that you two used to listen to when you were feeling homesick.
1: Shippers getting excited about shipping. I can dig it. (laughs) So Damon just, like, started to go across this napkin, uh, pulling shipping region names and crafting rhymes around them. And he was struck by the connection between a barometric pressure low and a personal emotional low, which felt especially British, seeing as the rain and fog has such a profound impact on the national mental health. And so... Once they finished the song, of course it went on to become like not only a fan favorite, but a band favorite, hence its inclusion as the only non-single on Blur's best of. I mean, what do you even say about a song like this, Alyssa? It's it's like an epic defining blur song in my opinion.
2: Yeah, honestly, I think it's probably the most beautiful song on the album.
1: It's definitely very beautiful, very epic, very sweeping, and I think it's a fantastic closer. It's not the last song on the album, but it's definitely playing that role. It definitely, it just doesn't really, like, I've never really reached for this one to listen to outside of the album. It is strictly an album cut for me. I
0: definitely have been playlisting it for a very long time. I think, I see this song as a pretty critical moment in the development of how Damon Albarn crafts albums. Obviously, he's a guy who thinks about albums in, like, terms of their structure having these rules to them, like, you know gotta have a little punk song on it this seems like the first time he walks into that philosophy on on how he should be closing these things off with like giving you something that you can take home with you like philosophically maybe maybe it's a little melancholy but like just a ray of sunshine coming through the cracks it's big it's epic it's a forbearer to me the songs like you know demon days and the good the bad and the queen and we got the power uh And, you know, it's like, here's something dark, but it's going to be okay, you know? This is a low, but it won't hurt you.
1: And I think there's something, like, extremely powerful and very British about the fact that they're wringing all of these emotions from like something as mundane as like shipping forecasts and locations and weather patterns and stuff like that. That's well, my favorite of, thing about the song yeah. for sure. Well, of course it
0: reminded me of, of Drifters and Trawlers from Maryland. Yeah, a obviously. song that also very emotionally looks at the at the at the fishing industry and shipping around that. Yeah, how am I going to sit here and say anything unique or meaningful about This is a Low? It's like one, it's one of the best Blur songs. A lot of people agree with me on that. It's a huge part, in my opinion, of why Park Life is seen as this definitive statement about the British identity that it is. It's probably a, a pretty big part of Blur's place in the music canon in general, I would say. I mean, one thing, Trevor, is that this song eventually became part of the shipping report on, on the BBC radio. They would just like... <laughs> Put a little bit of underneath it so yeah it's, it's it's definitely wormed its way much like park life just into the identity of of great britain and through popular culture
1: definitely a fantastic epic note for the album to go out on and like you said maybe the first example of that big classic damon Auburn closer that we've all grown to love over the course of his wider career
0: uh, it's an arresting and, and evocative moment let's go to a different moment though and talk about lot 105.
1: Yes, the true final track on the album, the real closer. The The band unanimously
0: agreed to record Lot 105 for inclusion uh, at the end of the album after feeling that This Is A Low was, quote, too heavy to serve as a closer.
1: What do you think about that choice? Because I'm interested. Fuck that. Fuck yeah? that. Dumb. I think it actually works pretty well, and I agree with the band here. Ugh. You know, like... This is this is an album that like I've said is very whimsical, has like a real kind of fun sense of romance to it. And to end on this is a low. One feels a little too like too heavy like they were saying, and it also feels a little too definitive in a certain way. I feel like by ending on lot 105, they're really painting a more open-ended ending to this whole experience. Like Yes, the album is over, but this version of Britain that they've crafted is going to be a place that kind of exists after you're even done listening to the album.
0: I have never—I don't think I've—I've seldom felt more diametrically opposed to a take of yours on this show, Trevor. Like, I I would throw this out in a heartbeat. And also— boys, why the fuck do you keep doing this? I think it's one of the most damaging things you can possibly do to a great album to keep tacking on these nothing little ditties at the end, which they keep fucking doing in Blur. Who's telling you more of this? Like, why does this feel like the correct thing to do? Are they listening to other albums? Nobody else is doing this. You you built, in my opinion, one of the best album closers of any band of the era. And I just think that, like, You're just like, it's like you're fucking crumpling it up at the end and throwing it in the garbage can. I I,
1: hate this here. I I really disagree. And I think the the fact, one of the strongest things about Lot 105 is that it it closes the album without impeding on how much of a closer this is a low feels like. There's something about Lot 105 that just makes it feel like some appropriate walkout music or something after the show is over. It doesn't. Fe- it doesn't really feel like the ending. It just feels like a postscript, which I really don't mind there being here. I don't even
0: agree with you one percent. It sucks me out of it every time. It's like this is a low, is cast like a spell over me, and then I'm like, oh my fucking god,
1: <laughs> here we are again in lot one hundred and five. I don't know. It just doesn't feel like the kind of album that you're supposed to leave feeling like, or, or maybe lot one hundred and five being there is part of the spell that it casts on me. it, it gives me time to reflect on. Having just experienced this is a low and the rest of the album, and kind of it, it feels like it's ushering me out of the album experience. I I really do like it quite a bit. I like all of these little instrumental interludes and outros that they add to this album, just to kind of give it a greater sense of character. I think it really works.
0: Alyssa, tiebreaker.
2: You see, that's the funny part because I'm really in the middle on it. I like it as a closing song, but I don't think I like it for this album. Um, I feel like This Is A Low was, like, such the peak of an emotional journey that, like, this song does take away from it. That being said, I really do like it, and I like it as a closer, but I just don't think it works with this album.
0: You know, it is what it is worth mentioning that this organ melody... It's something that the band was playing at soundchecks, which kind of makes this, like, a partner or a connection to some other songs, like the like intermission and commercial break for Modern Life is Rubbish, which also mm-hmm. kind of grew out of soundcheck jams. I, I do think that like by the end of this, when it's kind of all falling over, it's interesting. I think it's an interesting piece of music, you know, like if it was a B-side or something, it would be a cool little
1: curiosity for me. I just really think it's, uh, it's doing some damage here at the end of the record. I'm really not mad about it. I think it's a fine enough outro. How would you feel if it was not its own track? If there was like a minute of silence at the end of this is a low and then this one kicked in even worse i want to put this is a low on on playlists so no
0: a
2: bummer and it's just too different it's way too different and you know again looking at it as a concept album it just doesn't make sense to be there you know it. i don't know but I do like it. That's the worst part. I do I really like, to I I do like a, listening
0: to it. <laughs> here's something we might agree on, Trevor. It's a very blurry move to do this. And I think sure. that you and I coming slightly down on the other sides on blur has something to do with how we're reacting to that, that potent hit of blurriness we're
1: getting here. Yeah, I think, I think you might be onto something there. But hey, it sounds like we're all in agreement that even if we don't like the way this album ends, we're all big fans of this record.
0: Fucking great. It's so good. It's it's like... It's a classic. It's definitely in my, like, top... I would say it's in my top... Probably 10, maybe top five Damon Albarn records. I'm not so sure though, because when I talk, when I think about blur albums, this one feels like the most important, but maybe not my favorite. And we're going to get to that
1: one in a little while. That's pretty much exactly where I come down on it. It would be in my top three blur albums for sure, but I don't think I would put it at number one, despite the fact that it feels like the most important. And maybe if I'm trying to be objective, which is like a silly thing to do about art and music. But I think it might be objectively their best work.
0: I can see that, too. It's also, with respect to Alex James, it's definitely the Blur song you'd shoot into space or the Blur album you'd shoot into space. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. But at this point, we like to kind of look back on more granularly and share our favorite moments Moments. from the record.
1: Alyssa, did you prepare
2: a list of moments moments from uh, (laughs) Parklight?
1: I did, but
2: genuinely, I would prefer someone go ahead of me.
1: (laughs) Do you want to do it in reverse order uh, that we did the... Gorillatives, so I go first, then Dylan, and then Alyssa. Let's do it. We'll start with our number threes.
0: Trevor, you're beginning.
1: My third favorite moment on the album comes pretty pretty towards the back. It's the part where Jubilee plays on his computer games.
0: (laughs) 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 My number three is from End of a Century, and it's that trombone solo that I feel really grounds the song as being you know, somewhat romantic in spite of maybe this having like a somewhat dark look at this relationship. There's something that's just so undeniably warm and beautiful about it. That is a good moment.
2: Um, I think my third is going to be the whistle that happens in Tracy Jacks when the line ran around naked is sung. Oh,
1: I can't believe we <laughs> forgot to mention that. Oh, that is so a funny. really great
2: moment. I whistle, along I whistle to it. a to it. saved perfect.
1: the
0: Park Life episode with her number yeah. three.
1: <laughs> we almost
0: got through without the wolf whistle when Tracy <laughs> Jacks gets naked on Tracy Jacks.
1: That's very good. So so my second favorite moment on the album, Dylan you've already mentioned it. It's that trombone solo in the middle of End of a Century. It oh, feels sick. like it feels like it's really Just very well inserted into that song, and it comes at the perfect time. Definitely one of my favorite instrumental contributions to the album.
0: Uh, My number two on this record is, like, undeniably had to be on this list. It's from Park Life, and it's just the entire Phil Daniels performance. He just gives shape and rise to this concept of the park class. You really just imagine this whole species of,
1: of human beings that lives around the dustbins in the park, and that's Phil Daniels in a nutshell. I, I can't imagine the song or the album without him.
2: Um, my number two is the end of Out There. You know, just the echoing sun that eventually fades out. I really love that for some reason.
1: It's beautiful. Yeah, Far Out's a really underrated track, both due to the musical elements and because of the treasure trove of trivia that's behind it. My, my favorite moment on the album, though, has got to be when Graham first comes crashing through the roof at the beginning of Girls and Boys and turns the song from a bouncy synth-pop tune into a sweaty dance-punk workout.
0: It's a, it's a perfect example of just the whole color of something changing by one ingredient. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number one moment is, is, not unlike Alyssa's number three, from Tracy Jacks. Uh, it's, the, it's the opening line of that chorus. Every day he got closer, he knew in his heart he was over. So painful, so painful subtle pick for a favorite moment on the album but i like it a lot i saw what i've been singing in my head the whole week everything got close i mean the melody is also doing a lot of heavy lifting there i think it's a an oddly emotional moment in this kind of weird bouncy song it's
1: a good moment
2: so my uh, last moment is actually the entirety of lot 105 because while i may not like it as an ending to the album it is really fun to listen to.
1: I didn't see that coming.
0: By Crazy ending, third act twist. By the <laughs> end of that song, once it really goes off kilter, it definitely, they definitely tapped into something. Definitely. I'll stand by it as
1: a fitting conclusion of the record. I don't care.
0: And I'll stand by you on a cliffside in Dover waiting to push you into the Rocky Crags <laughs> below, Trevor. <driver. laughs>
1: Thanks, buddy. Alyssa, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a blast. Been oh my blast. god, this was a lot
2: of fun. I'm honestly, I'm so glad that you guys uh, invited me on because I genuinely never expected to win the contest and I never expected to get that offer. So it's a huge thing for me. Can you
0: tell our listeners where they can find you? You've got a number of shows I know and places they can seek out if they need more Alyssa.
2: <laughs> yes, I do have a few shows. I would like to focus on uh, what a concept though if... Just because it's so similar to, you know, this one in general. Just in track-by-track track kind of review. Um, so you can find us on Twitter at uh, what a Concept Pod. And then I'm basically part of um, a collective of other podcasts and streaming. Uh, so we're called Craftic Studios, and you can find us pretty much anywhere at Craftic Studios. Uh, we do Twitch streaming and everything like that. Um, and then if you specifically want to find me, I am on Twitter at Gravity Definer. Uh, and if you don't mind, I asked Chrissy if she wanted me to say anything on behalf of her.
0: Oh, please do.
2: And in very Chrissy-like fashion, uh, she gave me something that really doesn't fit, uh, with anything. And it's, she just said, uh... Please spay and neuter your pets.
0: Oh, like Bob Barker at the end of uh, every episode of of, Wheel of or of uh, Price is Right. I feel it. <laughs> it's always it's always the right time to remind people to spay and neuter their pets. Definitely go check out what a concept. If you're listening to the show and you like it, because I I myself. Listen to a number of their episodes, really love that show, especially recommend that you go listen to the Gorillas episodes of that show. Hey. You've done, let's see, you've done uh, Humans, you've done Demon Days, correct?
2: Yes, we've done Demon Days. We haven't covered Humans yet, but I brought it up a lot throughout episodes.
0: Oh, right, that's right. You were just kind of mentioning things that happen happened. Humans, we but you have even...
2: a joke that I should have, um, you know, like a swear jar for Gorillas mentions because... It's a little out of
0: hand. (laughs) Yeah, you could save up to buy one of those cool new figures like Noodle with a monster hand. You have no idea
2: how excited I am
0: about those. Definitely go check out What a Concept. Start with that Demon Days episode. I think you'll really enjoy it. Well, thank you very much. Trevor, you can find this show on Twitter at Fancast, And you can find uh, you on Twitter at Trevor Ickrath with the vowels taken out. T-R-V-R-K-R-T-H. And you can find yourself on Twitter at Dylan Flynn. Uh you should also check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Hallelujah Monkeys. We're always doing interesting things on the Patreonkeys Club, and you got a whole backlog of episodes you can check out there. Uh, where else? Anything else? Not really. That's it,
1: right? Do we do we know what we're doing for the next episode yet? Or are we doing this by the seat of our pants?
0: Well, here's what I'll say. You and I have looked into the future of what we want to do with Hallelujah Monkeys, and we have something we have some stuff coming up. The goal here is, I'm not going to give too many details, but the goal here is we're going to continue down our road of exploring the output of the gorillas collaborators, but we're also going to kind of split our efforts and do some other more Gorillaz-y, maybe weirder things uh, with the show coming up, which I'm very much looking
1: forward to, Trevor. Yeah, I'm looking forward to all that stuff a lot. Maybe nothing to announce just yet, but, you know, watch this space. We'll be back very soon, but until then, I'll just say, I've been Trevor at I've been Dylan Flynn.
2: And I've been Alyssa Johnson.
1: And until we see you next time, don't get lost in heaven. Demo.
0: years wide. Why is he holding the Melanica like it's a dick? (laughs) (laughs) David, you're out of control.
2: Oh man.